plan, he took Sam Papich aside and informed him, on a personal basis, that the CIA was already conducting an extensive mail-opening operation. Papich worried that all hell was going to break loose because the CIA was operating on U.S. soil, a violation of its charter, and worse, intruding on Hoover's domestic turf. Angleton's response was deft. On February 6, 1958, he wrote to Hoover and offered to respond to FBI requests for mail opening. They would call it Project Hunter. Hoover welcomed the gifts of Bureau Source 100. Ours was a shotgun treatment, Angleton later explained. Theirs was rifle treatment. We were covering a vast amount of mail. The Bureau's treatment was more or less pinpointed on matters that came as a result of a breakthrough or identification of some active case. Angleton was well aware that opening U.S. mail violated federal law. Existing federal statutes preclude the concoction of any legal excuse for the violation, wrote his deputy Jim Hunt in 1961 when the Office of Security expressed concern about flat potential of the lingual operation. No cover story is available to any government agency, Hunt warned. Hoover knew what he wanted to do with the Hunter intelligence take. In 1956, he had revived the Bureau's counterintelligence program, known as COINTELPRO, originally created to counter pro-German subversives during World War II. Hoover's first target was the American Communist Party, a shrinking organization discredited by Khrushchev's secret speech and American prosperity. With the bounty of personal information from Lingual Hunter, Hoover was able to expand the list of COINTELPRO targets in the years to come to include such enemies of the people as civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Nation of Islam, the Black Panthers, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, as well as the Socialist Workers' Party and Women's Strike for Peace. Historians and journalists usually describe COINTELPRO as a Hoover creation, which is not quite the case. It was created by Hoover with the critical help of Angleton, and it functioned as a joint FBI-CIA venture with the Bureaucratic Division of Labor. The Bureau took the lead in targeting dissident Americans inside the United States. The agency took the lead outside the country. In the COINTELPRO attack on the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and its most famous member, Lee Harvey Oswald, the FBI and CIA would work together. Angleton used CIA mail surveillance to feed the COINTELPRO beast. Mole Ezra Pound was released from St. Elizabeth's Hospital in April 1958. He was now 72 years old, still a favorite of conservatives, but no longer enchanted with fascism. He had finished another book of contos while incarcerated. Pound's psychiatrist found him a fascinating thinker and no danger to society. Although Angleton gave former CIA officer Peter Sichel the impression that he had been in touch with Pound while the poet was at St. Elizabeth's, there's no evidence Angleton ever visited or wrote. After his release, Pound returned to Italy and connected with many old friends, but not with Angleton. Angleton was consumed by his work and its agonies. He felt intimations of bad news on October 18, 1959. A front-page story in the New York Times reported that Russell Langell, chief security officer at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, had been arrested— the Soviet Foreign Ministry released a statement saying that Langell had been seen giving a package to an unidentified passenger on a city bus, arousing suspicion. 
Langell, who denied that he engaged in espionage, was expelled from the country. The counterintelligence implications were disturbing. Langell was the agency's contact with Pyotr Popov, a military officer and the best agent that the CIA had inside the Soviet Union. For seven years, Popov had been passing reports on the inner workings of the Red Army at incredible risk to himself and at virtually no cost to the agency. At a time when Western intelligence services had little reliable information from inside the Soviet armed forces, Popov's reporting was priceless. He brought us so much, said George Kizavalter, one of the agency's top Russian-speaking officers. For instance, when he was on duty at night, he could gain access to the monthly payroll. He copied the whole thing, and it contained all kinds of exotic information. Kizavalter was a bear of a man who wore rumpled clothes and spoke perfect Russian and German. The only son of an emigre Russian engineer, he had served in the U.S. Army before joining the CIA in 1951. As a branch chief in the Soviet-Russia division, his specialty was the handling of Russian agents. Over the course of six years, Kizavalter met more than a hundred times with Popov. The CIA soon learned that Popov was the unidentified bus passenger with whom Langell had made contact. On December 20, 1959, the Red Star newspaper in Moscow reported what the CIA men already suspected, that the KGB had unmasked Popov as an American intelligence agent. The CIA men debated what had gone wrong. Bill Harvey, chief of the Berlin House, thought Popov had been exposed by the sloppy tradecraft of one of his contacts in Moscow. Bill Hood, Angleton's friend, who also handled Popov, cited several obvious clues that supported this analysis. Angleton countered that the obvious clues did not necessarily provide the best answers to counterintelligence problems. Angleton suspected Popov had been betrayed by what he called a mole, a spy within the ranks of the CIA. In time, Angleton's suspicion would harden into a fixed idea, which fueled an ideological crusade that more than a few of his colleagues denounced as a witch hunt. It all began in October 1959, according to the CIA's in-house historian David Robarge. The seminal event was Pyotr Popov's arrest. Angleton's fixation on the mole started around 1960, after Popov's then-unexplained compromise, he wrote. Oswald. Two weeks after Langell's arrest on Monday, November 2, 1959, Jane Roman received her daily call from Sam Papich. He asked her about a story that appeared on page A7 of Saturday's Washington Post, Ex-Marine Asks Soviet Citizenship. The wire service reported that a 20-year-old former Marine from Texas named Lee Harvey Oswald had shown up at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and announced his intention to renounce his U.S. passport and become a citizen of the Soviet Union. Papich wanted to know more. When Roman received a cable from the State Department about Oswald, she scrawled on the top, Mr. Papich would like to know about this ex-Marine who recently defected into the USSR. She routed the cable to a colleague who might have answers. Two days later, Roman received another cable on Oswald, this one from the Office of Naval Intelligence. ONI had responsibility for Oswald because he had recently been discharged from the Marine Corps. Something of special interest, the sender wrote to Roman. Another State Department cable came in, and soon Oswald's name was circled with an underlined note emphasizing, 
says has offered Soviets any information he had acquired as enlisted radar operator. Oswald was an obvious target for the counterintelligence staff. It wasn't unheard of for Americans to move to Moscow in 1959, but it was unusual. Few, if any, of the American defectors had ever announced their intention to give the Russians classified military information. Roman routed the cable about Oswald to Birch O'Neill and the Special Investigations Group, which was responsible for keeping files on defectors. Young Oswald was a person of interest. The CIA's handling of information about Lee Harvey Oswald, the accused assassin of President John F. Kennedy, is a story shrouded in deception and perjury, theories and disinformation, lies and legends. But at least one aspect of the story cannot be disputed. Angleton controlled the CIA's file on Oswald for four years, from his defection in October 1959 until his death in November 1963. Angleton would conceal this fact for the rest of his life. He hid it from the Warren Commission and obfuscated about it with congressional investigators in the 1970s. The story only began to emerge when Congress ordered the declassification of long-secret JFK assassination records in the 1990s. While the full story has yet to be disclosed, much of it can now be told. Lee Oswald was the object of intense CIA interest from the moment he arrived in Moscow. Angleton relied on the Special Investigations Group to monitor his movements. Birch O'Neill, the chief of the SIG, supervised a staff of eight people, including Elizabeth Ann Egerter, master of the office filing system. She controlled Oswald's file on behalf of Angleton. Betty, as she was known, was a single woman from Croton, New York, who had worked as an interior designer and traveled around Europe with her husband, a professional musician. They divorced, and she went to work for the CIA. She had no children. Her life focused on her work, which she took seriously and never spoke about except when compelled by subpoena. Egerter liked to describe the SIG as the office that spied on spies. The SIG was dedicated to exploiting the actions of defectors like Oswald. As Angleton explained in a staff directive, the SIG maintains and uses sensitive counterintelligence holdings, including certain comment, communications intelligence, and defector materials to match these against operational and personality data, and thus to derive operational leads. This was the arcane language of secret intelligence work. Sensitive counterintelligence holdings, match defector materials, derive operational leads— Dense, complex, and elusive, the words have to be unpacked to be understood. In plain speech, you could say the men and women of the SIG used information about defectors obtained via wiretaps or other illicit means to support covert operations against the Soviet Union. In short, Angleton's mole hunters were running operations and they were interested in Oswald. So was Angleton himself. Someone, most likely Angleton, gave Oswald's name to a subordinate in the C.I. project. That person created a note card in the lingual file bearing Oswald's name and the handwritten words, Secret Eyes Only. This notation put Oswald in a rather select group. The former Marine Corps radio operator was now one of 300 Americans whose international mail was opened, copied, and filed for future use. Why did Angleton do this? He was interested in Oswald. 
As he told the FBI, the purpose of the lingual program was to identify persons behind the Iron Curtain who might have some ties in the U.S. and who could be approached in their countries as contacts and sources for CIA. A note scrawled on the card provided the details. Recent defector to the USSR, former Marine. The proof of Angleton's special interest in Oswald emerged in the counterintelligence staff's unusual handling of his defection. Standard CIA procedure for collecting information on a defector required the opening of a personality file, known in the lingo of many federal agencies as a 201 file. The CIA's central file registry had tens of thousands of 201 files, some fat, some thin. Some were crammed with classified information. Others consisted only of newspaper clippings. Oswald, an ex-Marine with a security clearance who had threatened to share military secrets with the Soviets, certainly qualified for a 201 file. Angleton's people knew that. Jane Roman and Betty Egerter didn't have to read the latest edition of the Clandestine Services Handbook to know that a 201 file should be opened on persons of active operational interest at any given point in time. They also knew the informal three-document rule. As soon as the agency received three incoming reports on a person, it was time to open a 201 file. Oswald qualified on every count. Nonetheless, the Special Investigations Group chose not to open a file on him. Instead, the Office of Security opened a file on the itinerant ex-Marine on December 9, 1959. This file, labeled OS-351-164, then became the repository of all the information that the agency received about Oswald. Needless to say, the Office of Security did not create Oswald's file without consulting Angleton's staff. The CISIG served as a liaison between CI staff and the Office of Security, Egerter later explained. We worked very closely with the Office of Security. In the case of Oswald, the unusual procedure had to be approved at higher levels. Robert Bannerman, deputy director of the Office of Security in 1959, told historian John Newman that Jim Angleton was in on this. Angleton's interest in Oswald was finely tuned. The effect of creating an Office of Security file instead of a 201 file was to ensure information about the ex-Marine was held more tightly. For Angleton's counterintelligence purposes, an OS file had clear advantages over a 201 file. A 201 file was accessible to anyone in the Directorate of Plans who had a clearance to draw from the central file registry. By contrast, an OS file could not be seen by anybody outside of Office of Security and the SIG. So, if someone inside the agencies, say a KGB mole, wanted to know more about the ex-Marine whose defection the Washington Post had reported, the person would have to ask for his file in writing and provide his or her name, office, and phone number. By creating a restricted OS file and not a 201 file for Oswald, Angleton could determine who in the ranks of the CIA was interested in him. The unusual handling of the Oswald file was one technique among many for finding the mole who had betrayed Popoff. In the next year, a series of FBI and State Department memos flowed into Angleton's Oswald file. In October 1960, the State Department sent a notice to the CIA stating that it wanted up-to-date records on all recent defectors to the Soviet Union. The notice came attached with a list of a dozen known defectors, one of whom was Lee Oswald. 
That missive, according to the CIA's account, prodded the counterintelligence staff to act. In December 1960, 13 months after Oswald's defection, Betty Egerter completed the paperwork to create a 201 file. In the process, she inexplicably gave Oswald the wrong middle name, labeling the file Lee Henry Oswald. More important than the name on the file was its contents. Egerter took all the material that was collected in the OS file and transferred it to the new 201 file. The Oswald file now contained a dozen items, four documents from the State Department, two from the CIA, two from the FBI, one from ONI, and three newspaper clippings. The mole hunt was the most sensitive of Angleton's operations, which is why he put Egerter in charge of the Oswald file. All new information on Oswald was routed to her. In June 1962, for example, the Lingwald team opened and read a letter written by Oswald's mother, Marguerite. This item will be of interest to Mrs. Egerter, CISIG, and also to the FBI, said the cover memo on the intercepted letter. Neither the CIA nor Angleton shared this early interest in Oswald and his family with the Warren Commission, which investigated the assassination of JFK. Not until the mid-1970s did people start to ask questions. In 1978, an attorney for the House Select Committee on Assassinations put the question to Angleton. Given the agency's standard procedures, he asked, what could explain the year-long delay in opening Oswald's 201 file? I don't know the circumstances, Angleton replied. I don't know why it would take that long. In fact, Angleton did know the circumstances. He had created the SIG to track defectors. He was alarmed by Popoff's arrest in late 1959, and he worried about moles. He had put Oswald's name in the lingual list. He wanted to monitor the ex-Marine closely and guard all information about him, and he needed to hide a damning fact— Oswald figured in his mole hunt a thousand days before he became world famous. In May 1960, Angleton crashed. Stressed by the demands of his impossible job, drinking to excess and gasping for breath from a recurrence of tuberculosis, he was a shambling wreck. His doctor insisted he'd take a medical leave at a sanatorium in Virginia, and suddenly he was outside the world of secret intelligence. Angleton recuperated for months. He did not return to the house in Arlington until November 4, 1960. The next Tuesday was Election Day. When the votes were all counted, Senator John F. Kennedy had defeated Vice President Richard Nixon in the closest presidential election since 1876. Angleton knew Nixon from policy discussions about Cuba. He knew Jack Kennedy personally from dinner parties at the Myerses and the Bradleys. Like most people in their social crowd, Jim and Cicely Angleton found Kennedy and his wife Jacqueline enormously attractive, but they were not always impressed by Kennedy's politics. Angleton usually voted Republican. He had supported Wendell Wilkie in 1940 and Dwight Eisenhower in 1952. Kennedy's ironic charm reminded Cicely of a certain Shakespearean aristocrat. After Kennedy was elected, she quipped, Prince Hamlet is in the White House. JFK. James Jesus Angleton was almost exactly the same age as John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Both men were born in 1917, seven months apart. Both grew up in cosmopolitan families where they mastered the privileges of elite education and new wealth. 
both returned from World War II exuding the hopes and ambitions of a new generation. As they made their way toward positions of power in Washington in the 1950s, they saw each other with their mutual friends Cord and Mary Meyer. But if they were friendly, they were not close. Now Kennedy was the president-elect of the United States of America, and Angleton worked for him. With the arrival of a new administration came new issues and new assignments for Angleton. One of them concerned Israel. Thanks to a long-standing agreement with Dulles, Angleton served as the Israeli desk officer at CIA headquarters. He also controlled the CIA station in Tel Aviv. In 1960, he brought in Peter Jessup, a career officer whom he trusted to serve as station chief. Angleton continued to visit Israel often, meeting with Jessup as well as with Isser Harrell, Amos Menor, Memi Deshalit, and other senior figures in the Israeli government. What he didn't do was report on Israel's efforts to build a nuclear reactor and nuclear weapons. Others were more attentive. Henry Gromberg, a physicist from the University of Michigan, visited Israel's civilian nuclear facilities in November 1960 and came away with the distinct impression that a research reactor in the Negev desert town of Dimona was part of an effort to develop nuclear weapons. I feel sure its design is far beyond any kind of training reactor and that it will be capable of producing weapons-grade plutonium, he told the CIA. The agency sent up a U-2 spy plane, which returned with high-altitude images of unusual construction at Dimona. A former CIA intelligence estimate produced January 31, 1961, concluded... The secrecy and deception surrounding the undertaking at Dimona suggest that it is intended, at least in part, for the production of weapons-grade uranium. The Israelis had managed to keep the secret of Dimona from the CIA for more than two years. At the time, Angleton was briefed by agency photo analysts about the U-2 imagery. He never evinced much interest, said Dino Brugioni, deputy director of the CIA's National Photographic Interpretation Center. He was a real funny guy, Brugioni recalled. I'd meet with him, brief him, he'd ask a few questions, you'd leave, and never know what he's holding. Sometimes he'd have his office real dark and have a light only for you. He was a real spook. The U.S. Intelligence Board, which reviewed CIA operations on behalf of the White House, recommended the agency expeditiously disseminate all information that it collects on this subject to the rest of the government. As the Israel desk officer, Angleton was responsible for following the board's guidance. He ignored it. Cuba Angleton was more interested in Cuba. It was closer to home and more pressing. In his view, Israel was a friendly country, while Cuba had fallen to the enemy. Fidel Castro, the leader of the national uprising that ousted pro-American dictator Fulgencio Batista on January 1, 1959, had been consolidating power ever since. Unlike his liberal friends, Angleton was immune to the idea that Castro was a nationalist and a social reformer with whom the United States could do business. Angleton thought Castro was a Marxist-Leninist who predictably dispensed with bourgeois formalities like due process and jury trials in favor of putting his class enemies before a firing squad en masse. The CIA had been expelled from Havana, a city where the agency had once had a free hand. David Phillips, a rising star of the clandestine service, had to flee the island when the Cubans learned he was a CIA man. 
Havana, once a playground for American tourists and investors, had become inhospitable to the CIA, while the KGB was building an operational platform in the Western Hemisphere for the first time. In the last year of the Eisenhower administration, Angleton argued for a more aggressive U.S. policy. He found a sympathetic audience in Vice President Richard Nixon. Nixon is taking a very dominating position on Cuba, Angleton told an FBI friend in January 1960. He reported that he had held lengthy discussions with Nixon and other officials concerning a getting-tough policy which will be centered around possible U.S. government refusal to purchase Cuban sugar. The struggle for Cuba was a turning point for the CIA. For perhaps the first time in the agency's 13-year history, the CIA men faced organized public opposition from their fellow citizens. On April 6, 1960, the New York Times published a full-page advertisement with the headline, What's Really Happening in Cuba? The ad criticized U.S. news coverage of the Cuban Revolution as biased. Signatories included French philosophers Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, as well as novelists Norman Mailer, James Baldwin, Dan Wakefield, and Truman Capote, the poet Allen Ginsberg, and the scientist Linus Pauling. The letter was also signed by leading African-American intellectuals, among them historian John Henrik Clark and civil rights activist Robert F. Williams. The advertisement announced the creation of a fair play for Cuba committee, dedicated to the proposition that the Cuban Revolution posed no threat to the United States. The FPCC was the brainchild of Robert Tabor, a CBS News correspondent who had obtained a rare exclusive interview with Castro in 1957, and Richard Gibson, an African-American CBS correspondent who was also sympathetic to Castro. The FPCC was inundated with more than a thousand letters from people ready to take action. Across the South, black college students fighting Jim Crow-era laws were inspired by Castro's summary abolition of racial segregation laws in Cuba. Within six months, the FPCC had an estimated 7,000 members in 27 chapters and 40 campus affiliates. The FPCC was one of the first manifestations of the popular oppositional movements that would become known as the New Left. The CIA was roused to action. Two days after the ad appeared, Bill Harvey, who had been called back from Berlin to take over the anti-Castro operation, bragged to FBI liaison Sam Papich that this agency has derogatory information on all individuals listed in the attached advertisement. From the start, the CIA targeted the FPCC. Within four years, the agency would succeed in destroying it. When Angleton returned to his desk in early 1961, he was apprised of the latest development in the Cuba operation. The agency was training a brigade of 1,500 exiles at a ranch in Guatemala. They would sail to Cuba, declare a beachhead, and call on the people to rise up against the Castro government. Under the combination of military attack and diplomatic isolation, the CIA expected the young Cuban leader would fold, as our Pence had in Guatemala in 1954. President Kennedy had been briefed on the plan by Alan Dulles and the deputy director of the CIA, Charles Cabell. Preoccupied with confronting the Soviet Union in Europe, Kennedy's only questions were whether the United States would be blamed for overthrowing Castro and whether the invaders would need U.S. air support. The answer on both points, he was told, was no. The rebels were indigenous Cubans and they needed no outside military help to prevail. 
JFK asked for the opinion of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who pronounced the plan sound from a military point of view. In the United States, public support for the Cuban leader seemed to be growing. Suddenly, Cuba was not just an issue, but a cause. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee announced the formation of a San Francisco chapter at a street rally in January 1961. To a crowd of thousands, poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti read an apocalyptic homage to the young Cuban leader whom he expected would soon be dead at the hands of the CIA. It was entitled, One Thousand Fearful Words for Fidel Castro. It's going to be a tragedy, I see no way out, among the ad men and slumming models and the brilliant snooping columnists who are qualified to call Castro psychotic because they no doubt are doctors and have examined him personally and know a paranoid hysterical tyrant when they see one because they have it on first hand from personal observation by the CIA, it looks like curtains for Fidel. It was not Jim Angleton's kind of poetry. The men of the CIA always underestimated Fidel Castro. In their Anglo-Saxon chauvinism, many thought he was a Latin hysteric who could be easily disposed of. This view was not held by Angleton's colleague Dick Helms, however, as top deputy to Richard Bissell, the brainy deputy director of plans, Helms was quietly skeptical about the agency's plans for a coup in Cuba. Castro was no arpence, he said. His well-propagandized enthusiasm for land reform, universal education, and social change had a significant appeal to Cuban peasants and the urban working class, Helms wrote later. He was young, energetic, forceful, and without question possessed a considerable romantic charisma— Helms thought the CIA plan to overthrow him with a small invasion force was doomed to fail, and the United States would have to intervene with its own armed forces. Castro had studied the CIA. His comrade-in-arms, Ernesto K. Guevara, an Argentine doctor, had lived in Guatemala during the 1954 coup and seen the CIA's tactics close up. Castro and Guevara fully expected the United States to mount a Guatemala-style operation against them so they took every defensive measure that our Pence had not. They shut down radio stations and newspapers that did not support the government. They organized and armed civilian militias and neighborhood watch groups. They mobilized the population against the American invaders with a nationalist battle cry, Patria o Muerte, Fatherland or Death. They were waiting for the CIA. Cuban intrigue boiling in Miami as Castro foes step up efforts, ran the headline for an article by Tad Schultz in the New York Times in early April 1961. On April 17th, the ships of the CIA-trained brigade landed on a remote coastal area of Cuba known as the Bay of Pigs, or Playa Giron. Castro ordered his army to the area. A Cuban Air Force plane bombed the ship disgorging the rebels. The invaders lost the element of surprise and were pinned down on the beach by gunfire. In Washington, the CIA men were frantic and disorganized. Alan Dulles had arranged to be out of the country to enhance the cover story that the agency was not involved. Deputy Director Cabell appealed to President Kennedy for help. Kennedy, attending a gala ball in the White House, was called away from the festivities for a conference— Cabell told the tuxedo-clad president that only U.S. air support could ensure the rebels' survival. Recalling that President Eisenhower had authorized air support in Guatemala in 1954, Angleton and most other CIA men assumed JFK would do the same. Kennedy said no. He had been told no U.S. air support would be needed, 
and he would not authorize it now. 117 of the CIA-trained Cuban men were killed in the fighting. A handful escaped into the mountains. The rest, more than 1,100 men, were taken prisoner. The battle was over less than 72 hours after it had begun. The Cuban David had defeated the American Goliath. Castro exulted, and communists crowed. The Cubans paraded the captured rebels before TV cameras. It was the most humiliating defeat in the history of the CIA, and arguably the worst blow to U.S. geopolitical credibility since World War II. It was, in the words of one agency post-mortem, a perfect failure. Publicly, Angleton would attribute the defeat to work of Castro's intelligence service in South Florida. I think the whole Bay of Pigs failure was because of penetration, he said. In other words, I think that when you're running an operation as massive as the Bay of Pigs, where journalists like Tad Schultz can learn the secrets and publish them in the New York Times, and where everybody and his mother down in Miami knew something was going on, obviously they sent provocateurs and agents into the United States. It was a counterintelligence failure. Kennedy was angry with the CIA for presenting him with an operational plan that had proved so weak and at his generals for endorsing it. Mostly, JFK berated himself for trusting the soldiers and the spies. I've got to do something about those CIA bastards, he moaned. How could I have been so stupid? In a moment of venting, he vowed to splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces. For the first time since 1947, the men of the CIA had reason to fear the man in the White House. Dick Helms recalled the spring and summer of 1961 as a busy interregnum marked with flashes of abrupt change, dampened by the anxiety most of us shared about the shape and future of the agency. Fortunately for the CIA, Robert Kennedy, the president's brother and now the attorney general, did not regard the defeat as insuperable. He wanted revenge. Upon reflection, President Kennedy rejected proposals for abolishing the clandestine service, Instead, he created a new planning cell for overthrowing Castro and assigned RFK as a member. As Robert Kennedy learned about the workings of the CIA's covert operation directorate for the first time, he became convinced that the Bay of Pigs' defeat could be avenged before the 1964 election. Overthrowing Castro, he told a well-attended Pentagon meeting in early 1962, is a top priority of U.S. government. All else is secondary. No time, money, or effort or manpower is to be spared. Hit him. As Kennedy's government regrouped, Angleton was drawn deeper into Cuban operations. On May 4, 1961, the National Security Council tasked the counterintelligence staff with a new job— to cooperate with the Cuban Revolutionary Council, the coalition of anti-Castro organizations funded by the CIA. The CRC was supposed to unify the opposition to Castro's one-party government and, when Castro was overthrown, establish a pro-American government in Havana. Angleton's assignment was to create, train, and support a highly motivated and professionally competent apolitical and career security service which will be dedicated to the preservation of the democratic form of government. He was asked to assign carefully selected and qualified agency personnel to work with the service during the current and post-Castro eras. Angleton wanted to make a difference in Cuba just as he had in Italy and Israel. Among other things, he wanted to assassinate Castro. Would you hit him? asked Bill Harvey. 
Angleton was sitting with his longtime colleague in the familiar confines of Harvey's Seafood Grill, along with a British friend named Peter Wright, a scientist at MI5 who would go on to write a best-selling memoir. Wright was visiting Washington on official business, and Angleton was his escort. As the three men poked at their food, they discussed the merits of murdering the president of Cuba. Would you hit him? The mood was businesslike. While Angleton and Harvey were not exactly friends, they had settled into a wary respect. Their guest, Wright, had been invited to Washington for a meeting at the National Security Agency. When Wright shared the latest innovation in British wiretapping capabilities, Harvey cursed him for not providing the information sooner. Harvey demanded to know why the CIA should trust him. The memory of being fooled by Angleton's phony friend Kim Philby still rankled Harvey. He was a man who nursed his grudges. Now they were talking about the assassination of an impudent demagogue, and Harvey could not help but wonder if his guest was serious. He put it to him straight. Would you hit him? I paused to fold my napkin, Wright later recounted. Waiters glided from table to table. I realized now why Harvey needed to know I could be trusted. We'd certainly have that capability, Wright told him, but I doubt we would use it nowadays. Why not? Harvey asked. We're not in it anymore, Bill, he replied, referring to the assassination business. We got out a couple of years ago, after Suez. We're developing a new capability in the company to handle these kinds of problems, Harvey explained. We're in the market for the requisite expertise. The capability was known in the CIA by the codename ZR Rifle, and Dulles had put Harvey in charge. With his contacts in the European crime syndicates, Harvey was thought to be most qualified for the job. In his notes for ZR Rifle, discovered years later by Senate investigators, he stressed that the CIA should recruit a gunman from the ranks of organized crime, and an assassin should have no roots or contacts in the place where he did the killing. Harvey, often caricatured as a drunken oaf, was in fact a meticulous planner. Wright, suddenly uncomfortable, tried to deflect their interest. I began to feel then I had told them more than enough, Wright wrote. The sight of Angleton's notebook was beginning to unnerve me. They seemed so determined, so convinced this was the way to handle Castro, and I was slightly put out that I could not help more. Wright was not a sentimental man, a scientist he had no patience for liberal pieties. As a Catholic, he had no interest in Marxist-Leninist materialism. He admired the determination of Angleton and Harvey to get rid of Castro. He also had misgivings. There was a streak of ruthlessness and lawlessness about the American intelligence community which disturbed many in the senior echelons of British intelligence, Wright said. The stormy interregnum at the CIA ended in November 1961. President Kennedy fired both Dulles and Richard Bissell for their leading role in the Bay of Pigs fiasco, Angleton understood the need for change, but he hated to see Dulles go. To replace Dulles, President Kennedy brought in an outsider, John McCone, a Republican, a corporate executive, and the former chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission. McCone had a reputation as a no-nonsense administrator. His conservative politics would help insulate the liberal president from Republican criticism while taking final decisions out of the hands of the CIA veterans, whom Kennedy no longer trusted. The only consolation for Angleton was that his friend Dick Helms would succeed Bissell as deputy director of plans. As they had risen in the ranks since their OSS days, 
Helms had gained a reputation as a plotter, at least compared to activist officers like Frank Wisner and Bill Harvey, but his doubts about the Bay of Pigs operation had been wholly vindicated. Like many a CIA hand, Angleton thought the prudent, steady Helms would establish the sort of discipline the agency badly needed. As Angleton's stature grew, so did his penchant for running agents and operations outside of normal CIA reporting channels. Cuba was no exception. In the spring of 1961, the Israeli government sent a diplomat named Nir Baruch to serve in Havana. He was also an intelligence officer reporting to Amos Manor back in Israel. Baruch soon became Angleton's man in Havana. At a certain stage, in order to shorten the processes, the Americans supplied me with a more sophisticated coding device, Baruch recalled. A few times I flew to Washington and met with Angleton. On several occasions, he asked me to be a courier and meet with CIA agents in Cuba, but I declined. I thought this was too dangerous. Washington circa 1961 was a unique place in the history of the world. Never had there been a country so dominant, so wealthy, so influential, so attractive, and so feared as the United States of America. Never had the U.S. Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps, as well as the new multi-billion dollar intelligence agencies, the CIA, the NSA, and the DIA, been so fully funded. Never had the corporation that built the planes, submarines, and aircraft carriers been so large or profitable. Never had the press been so trusting of the government. Never had the men who led these organizations felt so confident, so powerful. Yet even the most conventional and dependably conservative man in the country perceived a problem. In his farewell address on January 17, 1961, outgoing President Dwight Eisenhower talked about what he called the military-industrial complex— Dull as Kansas and pale as a pickle, Eisenhower looked back on the events of his own lifetime and forward to events to come. Like the man, his words were plain. We now stand ten years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend not merely upon our unmatched material progress, riches, and military strength, but on how we use our power in the interests of world peace and human betterment. In taking his leave, Eisenhower warned Americans of a new threat born in America's Cold War prosperity. He referred to the network of arms manufacturers and military officers that had elevated him to supreme power. All the same, he didn't trust it. This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every statehouse, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development— Yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. Eisenhower emphasized he was talking about the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist.
The influence of the military-industrial complex feared by Eisenhower was felt after the Bay of Pigs debacle. The hostility to President Kennedy in his own government was so pervasive and palpable, two enterprising news reporters thought they should write about it. In September 1962, Fletcher Nebel, a reporter for the bi-weekly magazine Look, and Charles Bailey II, Washington correspondent for the Minneapolis Tribune, published Seven Days in May a fictional thriller about an incipient military coup in contemporary Washington. It resonated in the Capitol and with the public at large. In the book, the embattled liberal president was named Jordan Lyman, his last name linking the fictional tale to its real-life inspiration, General Lyman Lemnitzer, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The fictional coup leader was Gentleman Jim Scott, a popular general and war hero who bore a passing resemblance to the real-life U.S. Air Force General Curtis LeMay, the man who had firebombed Dresden and Tokyo during World War II. To rescue the nation from Lyman's misguided liberal policies, Scott orchestrates a plan to force the president to cede powers to his generals. With the help of a wily aide, President Lyman thwarts the overbearing general and makes peace with the Soviet Union. It was a liberal fantasy grounded in Washington's conservative realities. It quickly became a bestseller. Never had the Joint Chiefs and the Commander-in-Chief been so alienated. Nebel thought Lemnitzer's private tirades about Kennedy showed disrespect for the office of the presidency and for democratic government. LeMay was even more contemptuous of JFK. A burly man fond of cigars, LeMay commanded the U.S. nuclear missile arsenal and its nuclear-armed aircraft. He thought the world was a dangerous place where the United States sometimes had no choice but to bomb its foes into submission. He had no fear of nuclear war. Indeed, he thought the time might come when it would be necessary. In retirement, he would liken JFK and his entourage to cockroaches. The top CIA men were not quite so harsh on Kennedy. As a group, they were more educated, more liberal, and more cosmopolitan than the uniformed men in the Pentagon. Many of them knew JFK socially, if not personally. Some thought he embodied the organization man, a bright, self-seeking conformist. Alan Dulles liked JFK until Kennedy fired him for the Bay of Pigs. After that, Dulles thought Kennedy had lost his nerve and began acting more like a god than a president. Empire Angleton was now accorded a mixture of deference and awe, he consciously enveloped himself and his staff in an aura of mystery, hinting at knowledge of grave secrets and hidden intrigue too sensitive to share. Only J. Edgar Hoover controlled as much secret information. Angleton's team at the post office in New York was opening 10,000 letters a year for the Lingual Hunter program. Angleton received a steady stream of actionable intelligence on leftists in touch with people in the Soviet Union as well as the correspondence of senators and congressmen who visited Moscow. He was assembling files on thousands of individuals and hundreds of organizations. His relationship with the FBI was strong. He had purchased Hoover's grudging cooperation with the hard currency of useful secrets. William Sullivan, the assistant director of the FBI's intelligence division, had become a friend of Angleton's and a student of his counterintelligence theories. The Bureau and the agency had collaborated effectively in rolling up a Soviet spy network headed by an intelligence officer named Rudolf Abel. Through Cord Meyer's International Organizations Division, Angleton waged intellectual cold war in dozens of countries, 
supporting the National Student Association, the largest student group in the country, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, a prestigious group of European anti-communist activists, and Counter Magazine, a leading intellectual journal, and even the Iowa Writers' Workshop, home to many budding American novelists. Allen Ginsberg would argue that Angleton had even succeeded in turning American literary criticism against the so-called beat writers like himself and Jack Kerouac. Angleton's friendship with Jay Lovestone and Louise Page Morris enabled him to keep the actions of the American Federation of Labor, now joined with the Congress of Industrial Organizations in the AFL-CIO, aligned with CIA operations around the world. He had his own network of agents operating outside the CIA's reporting system, including Morris and Nir Baruch. His friend George White still operated two CIA safe houses funded under MK Ultra accounts where White ran LSD experiments on unwitting subjects. And Angleton had scores of other friends, assets, agents, and sources whom he never talked about. I probably recruited more agents than any person in the CIA who would be known to you he later told investigators. Angleton had good relations with the National Security Agency. He personally investigated the case of Sidney Joseph Peterson, an NSA employee and suspected homosexual arrested in 1954 for passing sensitive cryptographic material to the Dutch government. Angleton came away satisfied that the information had not reached the KGB, and he allowed Peterson to plead guilty and avoid a public trial. Angleton's ties to British intelligence remained robust thanks to friendships with senior officials, including SIS Chief Maurice Oldfield, senior officer Nicholas Elliott, whom he knew from his OSS days, and newer acolytes in MI5, such as Arthur Martin and Stephen de Mowbray, who were intrigued by his analysis of KGB deception operations. He kept up with Kim Philby, now working as a journalist in Beirut. Angleton retained sway over CIA operations in Italy through his connections in the Vatican and the intelligence services. In the mid-1950s, when Rome Station Chief Jerry Miller and political action officer Bill Colby proposed an opening to the left, funding center-left parties to increase American influence with more progressive political forces, Angleton resisted, regarding all leftist parties as the cutting edge of communism— Thanks to his influence, the agency's funding continued to go to the more compliant centrist Christian Democrats, as well as to the anti-communist right, including his longtime ally Valerio Borghese, now running the neo-fascist National Front Movement. Angleton was welcome in Israel, where he visited with friends Amos Menor in Sheen Bet, Isser Harrell in the Mossad, and even Prime Minister Ben-Gurion and his influence on Cuban operatives was growing now that Bill Harvey had taken over the agency's Cuban task force. Angleton was running his own personal intelligence service. His secret travels in Western Europe, not to mention Israel, to meet with senior liaison officials with whom he had developed confidential relationships, constituted a form of independent operational activity, wrote George Calaris, the man who succeeded him as the counterintelligence chief in a secret report. The local station would effectively be cut out and command channel and communications would run direct to counterintelligence headquarters in Washington. And he had the permission of his bosses. The new CIA director, John McCone, was an outsider who knew little of how the agency operated. On all but the biggest policy issues, McCone deferred to Deputy Director Helms, who trusted Angleton completely. A firm believer that no intelligence service can for very long be any better than its counterintelligence component, 
Helms let Angleton do as he pleased, few questions asked. President Kennedy thought he had reined in the CIA by firing Dulles and Bissell after the Bay of Pigs, but his action did not much affect Angleton's power. The counterintelligence chief was now the third most powerful man in the CIA, and he was accountable to no one. Golitsyn On a cold night in Finland in December 1961, a heavyset man with hazel eyes presented himself at the home of Frank Freeberg, the chief of the CIA station in Helsinki. He explained that he was not Anatoly Klimov, as Freeberg thought. His name was Anatoly Golitsyn, and he was chief of the KGB Residentura in Finland. He said he wanted to defect to the United States immediately. Angleton was notified. Never before had such a high-ranking KGB officer offered his services to the CIA. Angleton approved. In the moment, Freeberg regarded Golitsyn's defection as the highlight of his career. In time, he would regret it as the fateful first step toward an epic fiasco. The agency's first psychological evaluation of Golitsyn arrived on Angleton's desk a few days later. The subject himself is a very alert, perceptive, and shrewd individual the agency's doctor wrote. Part of this may stem from his intelligence training and experience, but no doubt some of this is a reflection of his makeup. Golitsyn required more study, the doctor judged. There are indications of rather grandiose and omnipotent ideas, as well as some paranoid feelings about his own intelligence service, he went on. These are highly suspect as far as motivation for his defection go but additional data is needed from a psychiatric standpoint to further substantiate the possibility of emotional illness or imbalance. Angleton forwarded the report to J. Edgar Hoover. Anatoly Golitsyn was born to a poor family in Ukraine. He joined the Soviet Army in 1944 and was assigned to a military counterintelligence unit. After the war, he was transferred to the KGB's first chief directorate, where he ran operations against the United States. He claimed he had personally presented his proposals for reforming the KGB to Joseph Stalin in 1952. According to Golitsyn, Stalin had accepted his proposals but died before they could be implemented. The CIA could never corroborate any such meeting, but the story was consistent with Golitsyn's style. He wanted to immediately meet with the president and with the attorney general and with the director of CIA, said Vasya Gmirkin, a CIA officer who worked with Golitsyn. He didn't want to deal with anybody below that level, so he came with grandiose demands, saying that he had very valuable information to present, and we bought it. Pyotr Deryabin, another KGB defector working at the CIA, recalled Golitsyn had a big mouth and tended to invent stories which would make him look important. In terms of actionable intelligence, Golitsyn offered some real revelations. He detailed the organization of the Helsinki Residentura, this information was specific, accurate, and useful, though not exactly earth-shaking, said one analyst. Golitsyn said the Soviets had a spy in the British Admiralty, which proved to be true. He provided insights into Soviet efforts to penetrate NATO. Golitsyn had delivered a wealth of information on KGB personnel, organization, and methods, said one CIA memo. His counterintelligence and penetration leads, however, were considerably less helpful. Golitsyn intrigued Angleton. He said he had learned that the KGB had a high-level source inside the CIA, someone they called Sasha. This mole supposedly had been recruited by the KGB in 1950, or perhaps even earlier, he said. 
According to information Golitsyn had picked up, Sasha's real name began with the letter K and ended in SKI or SKY, he said. Sasha, he said, had been stationed in Germany after the war and had technical skills in the electronic eavesdropping. Golitsyn's information about the mole meshed with Angleton's fears about the betrayal of Pyotr Popov. Angleton was impressed when Golitsyn's information led straight to a suspect, a career officer in the Technical Service Division named Peter Carlo. He had served in the OSS, where he lost a leg when his PT boat hit a mine off the Italian coast. Recruited by the CIA in 1950, he served for six years in Germany before returning to headquarters. Carlo fit the profile of Sasha in more than one way. His last name began with the K, and it turned out he was born Peter Klebonsky. He possessed technical skills. He had studied a cavity-resonating microphone found in the U.S. Embassy in Russia, and a check of his file revealed there had been security issues in some of the TSD projects he worked on. Angleton told Helms that Carlo might be the mole and insisted that he be removed from any position where he would have access to intelligence. In January 1962, Holmes put Carlo on administrative leave without offering an explanation. The FBI interviewed him and administered a polygraph test, which he passed. Still, he was not returned to duty. Angleton was intrigued by another story Golitsyn told, which was supported by the documents he had brought with him. In May 1959, the KGB had held a conference attended by 2,000 officers, where Chairman Alexander Shelyepin announced an aggressive long-range strategy toward the West. The United States did not know much about how Premier Nikita Khrushchev and other officials in the Kremlin made their decisions. Angleton was skeptical that anything had changed since the death of Stalin in 1953, and Golitsyn's account strengthened his conviction. Shelyepin called for mobilization of the security and intelligence services to destabilize the Soviet Union's enemies and to weaken the alliances among them. Traditionally, communist doctrine held that the Soviet Union's main enemies were the United States and the NATO countries. Shelyepin had broadened this criteria to include West Germany, Japan, and smaller U.S. allies. He called on the KGB Department of Disinformation to coordinate with all ministries and undertake joint political operations with allied communist countries. The goal, according to Golitsyn, was nothing less than a KGB strategy that would affect the fundamental reasoning power of the Western powers. Angleton appreciated the potency of deception operations. He had seen how the British used the ultra-secret to fool the Germans on D-Day. He analyzed how the Polish communists had created and co-opted Wynne. He had studied the history of the Trust and Rota Capella, two ingenious operations mounted by the Cheka, a predecessor organization of the KGB, which effectively dismantled the Tsarist opposition to Soviet rule in the 1920s. Golitsyn's defection from the elite of the KGB was a premeditated political act of a high moral order, Angleton later wrote, an act not lacking in great courage, not to mention a significant lifelong sacrifice. He was moved by a conviction to warn the West of the new uses which the communist countries had devised in stealth for their improved political, intelligence, and military potential, and of the new menacing dimensions which these developments added to the Soviet threat. Blackmail Angleton was rising. In late 1961, the CIA moved from its scattered offices in Foggy Bottom and the Mall to a new headquarters, a shiny seven-story office block nestled in the woods of Langley, Virginia. 
With his stature and reputation, Angleton claimed prime real estate in the new building. The counterintelligence staff, now comprising nearly 200 people, occupied the southwest corner of the second floor. Angleton's office was room 2C43. In the outer office, there was a large reception room with the sofa, chairs, magazines, and three secretaries. In the inner office, Angleton pulled the Venetian blinds shut and sat behind a large executive-style wooden desk that dominated the room. Angleton overawed most everyone who disagreed with him and proved persuasive to the rest. Angleton supported Golitsyn when he asked for a meeting with President Kennedy. When told that was unlikely, Golitsyn said he would accept a meeting with the president's brother Robert. Angleton supported that, too. The FBI objected, saying they would lose control of Galitsyn if they allowed him to meet with policymakers. Angleton prevailed. A meeting at the Attorney General's office was arranged for July 2, 1962. In attendance, according to RFK's calendar, were Dick Helms and John W. Stone, the agency's alias for Galitsyn. Robert Kennedy thought of himself as a tough-minded man, not so liberal or intellectual or detached as his urbane older brother. RFK was more Catholic, more emotional, and more viscerally anti-communist. Unlike Jack, Bob hadn't had much of a problem with Joe McCarthy, for whom he had worked in the Senate. Bob hadn't worried about the Red Scare or the Lavender Scare. He thought communists working for the government should be fired, and the homosexuals, too. Bob Kennedy had fewer reservations about the CIA than did his brother. Since serving as JFK's eyes and ears on the committee to review the Bay of Pigs fiasco, RFK had become friendly with Alan Dulles. On Cuba, he clashed with the president's liberal advisors who thought Castro would survive. RFK wanted to hear Galitsyn out. The meeting was tape-recorded for the protection of all concerned, according to George Kizavalter, who later heard the tape. Golitsyn raised the idea of a multi-million dollar institute dedicated to destroying the Soviet Communist Party. Bob only promised to tell the president about their meeting. In taking his leave, Golitsyn said he had a letter for the president explaining the problem of Soviet penetration. Bob said he would deliver it. Angleton thought this was a splendid idea. Kizavalter and his colleagues in the CIA's Soviet Russia division thought it was a terrible idea. So the CIA men told Golitsyn that Kizavalter would deliver his letter. I was authorized to promise to deliver it to the president, Kizavalter recalled, and if it was not innocuous, to stop it. When the two men met, Golitsyn handed over the letter. Kizavalter scanned it, his attention lingering on a key passage. In view of the fact that the president who has promised me things through his brother Robert may not be the president in the future— how can I be sure the United States government will keep its promise to me for money and a pension? You SOB, Kizavalter snarled at the heavyset man with hazel eyes. You're a first-class blackmailer. This is chantage. Hearing the Russian word for blackmail, Golitsyn started to reconsider his gambit. Maybe issuing demands to the leader of the free world wasn't such a good idea. Golitsyn asked for the letter back. Oh, no, Kizavalter purred. You want it delivered to the president. I'll deliver it. In retirement, Kizavalter relished the memory of Golitsyn's panic. Golitsyn jumped up on top of the desk and then jumped down on my side and we began wrestling for the letter. I let him win. Golitsyn never asked for a meeting with JFK again. Yet Angleton's faith in Golitsyn never wavered. 
For reasons most intelligence professionals still do not understand, Angleton accepted at face value virtually every judgment Galitin rendered over more than a decade, said two agency historians. When Angleton first heard of the story of Yuri Nosenko in June 1962, he thought it improbable. Nosenko, a veteran KGB officer in Geneva, had approached the U.S. Embassy saying he needed some Swiss francs to replenish official funds blown in a drinking spree with some dubious women. In return, he said, he would supply the U.S. government with information that it would find useful. Nosenko was turned over to Pete Bagley in the Soviet-Russia division. Bagley initially found his story convincing. Angleton did not. Angleton referred to Galitsyn, who had said the defectors who came after him would all be phonies, meaning they would be agents dispatched and controlled by the KGB. Nosenko's father was the Soviet Minister of Shipbuilding in the 1950s. No small position. He was friends with senior Politburo members. Was it really probable, Angleton asked, that such a well-connected man would sell out his country for a few hundred dollars? With his powers of persuasion, Angleton was able to bring Bagley and David Murphy, the chief of the Soviet-Russia division, around to his view that Nosenko was a false defector, dispatched by Moscow Center to distract the CIA. But for everyone at the CIA who found Golitsyn credible, there were others who balked. Golitsyn certainly showed every indication of having a severe paranoid disorder, said CIA Dr. John Gittinger. I had an opportunity to see a great deal of information that he had provided and the various things he had done. Much of it was so absurd that it was impossible to believe that anybody would believe it. Angleton believed it. On the night of October 15, 1962, the CIA's National Photographic Interpretation Center in southwest Washington, D.C. was a busy place. The latest surveillance imagery from U-2 flights over Cuba showed new construction near the village of San Cristobal. The star-shaped battery of missiles was identical to Soviet nuclear missile bases described in material passed on by Oleg Penkovsky, a Soviet official who was spying for the CIA. The Penkovsky papers, as they were dubbed, confirmed what the analysts were seeing in the U-2 photos. The Soviet Union was installing nuclear missiles in Cuba. On Tuesday morning, October 16, 1962, CIA Deputy Director Marshall Carter briefed President Kennedy and his brother at the White House on what the photographs showed. All concerned realized the gravity of the revelation. The installation of the Soviet missiles so close to the American homeland was unprecedented. It was another test of the mettle of the man in the Oval Office. Hamlet the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962 was, in the words of historian Arthur Schlesinger, the most dangerous moment in the history of the world. The story of how that moment came and went has evolved over the decades. First told in daily news stories, the saga of the October Crisis, as it was called, was then fleshed out in longer magazine articles. Then came the memoirs and the histories with portentous titles such as Thirteen Days, The Missiles of October, and Eyeball to Eyeball. Thirty years later came the accounts of most of the officials involved, American, Russian, and Cuban, who spoke at a conference in Havana. Since then, a dominant narrative of the crisis has emerged, at least in English-language accounts. It is a tale of heroic liberal statesmanship. President Kennedy resisted the advice of a majority of his military advisers. 
the so-called Hawks urged airstrikes to destroy the Soviet missile sites, followed by a U.S. invasion to remove and replace the Castro government. JFK was a dove and opted for diplomacy. After 13 days of tense deliberations, Kennedy managed to coerce and persuade Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev to remove the missiles without going to war. The accounts of the former officials strengthened the dominant interpretation. It turned out that the U.S. military planners who assured Kennedy that the Soviets would step aside and acquiesce to a U.S. invasion were ill-informed. They estimated the Soviet Union had 15,000 troops on the island and that the nuclear missiles were not yet operational. Former Soviet officials told the Havana Conference that they actually had 42,000 troops on the island and the field commanders in Cuba had authority from Moscow to fire tactical nuclear weapons if attacked. A U.S. invasion, which the Joint Chiefs predicted would end with a quick victory, probably would have resulted in thousands of U.S. soldiers dying in the first use of atomic weapons since 1945. In the event of such an attack, U.S. military doctrine called for massive nuclear retaliation on scores of Soviet cities. Soviet doctrine also called for massive retaliation if the USSR was attacked by the United States. So if the United States had invaded, as the Joint Chiefs of Staff unanimously urged, the world might well have experienced a nuclear holocaust. With the benefit of hindsight, Many scholars regard the peaceful resolution of the crisis as JFK's finest moment as President of the United States. What the liberal account of the October crisis tends to overlook is the impact on President Kennedy's government. JFK's refusal to go to war in October 1962, despite the advice of the Joint Chiefs, stoked the seven days in May mood of rebellion that already pervaded the councils of U.S. national security agencies. The generals felt the president was abandoning the U.S. policy of containment of the Soviet Union in favor of accommodation. When JFK asked General LeMay how the Soviet military would respond to a U.S. invasion, LeMay assured him there would be no reaction. After all, the United States had overwhelming military superiority. The United States had 1,500 long-range B-47 bombers and 500 B-52s armed with nuclear bombs, as well as 200 intercontinental ballistic missiles. The Soviet arsenal, by contrast, consisted of a few long-range missiles whose unreliability was so great that it was uncertain exactly whom they threatened. The Soviets' long-range bomber forces consisted of 100 Tu-95 Bear bombers and 35 Bison bombers, whose range and flight characteristics made them easy targets for U.S. fighter jets and surface-to-air missiles. Kennedy doubted U.S. military superiority would overawe the Soviets. They know more than we can let these things go by without doing something, he told LeMay. They can't, after all their statements, permit us to take out their missiles, kill a lot of Russians, and then do nothing. LeMay argued that not attacking Cuba would invite aggression in the heart of Europe. This blockade and political action will lead right into a war, he warned. LeMay feared a strategic misjudgment similar to that of the European powers facing Nazi Germany in the 1930s. This is almost as bad as the appeasement at Munich, he said to the president. In other words, you're in a pretty bad fix at the present time. What did you say? JFK asked. You're in a pretty bad fix. Kennedy wouldn't be bullied. You're in there with me, he said coolly. LeMay went silent, chewing his unlit cigar in disgust. JFK walked out of the meeting furious. These brass hats have one great advantage in their favor, he snapped to his aide Ken O'Donnell afterward. If we, 
do what they want us to do, none of us will be alive later to tell them that they were wrong. JFK had recently read Barbara Tuckman's best-selling book, The Guns of August, about how the leaders of Europe had stumbled into a world war in August 1914 that few wanted or anticipated. Kennedy talked about the miscalculations of the Germans, Russians, Austrians, French, and British. The great danger, he said, is a miscalculation, a mistake in judgment. His cautious view differed radically from the confidence of men like LeMay and Angleton. They thought the greatest danger was not war, but Castro and the spread of Cuban-style revolutions in the Western Hemisphere. The tension between the White House and the national security agencies came to a boil in a meeting at the Pentagon in the middle of the crisis. Bill Harvey announced he had ordered six scouting teams to infiltrate Cuba in advance of the expected invasion. Bob Kennedy told him to call it off. Harvey said the mission was urgent. Kennedy told him to recall the teams. Harvey objected. The attorney general insisted. The younger man was staring down the older man when Harvey exploded. If you fuckers hadn't fucked up the Bay of Pigs, we wouldn't be in this fucking mess, he sneered. Bob Kennedy didn't have his brother's coolness. He just walked out of the meeting. Of course I was furious, he said later. You're dealing with people's lives. The best of the Cubans, the ones who volunteer, and you're going to go off with a half-assed operation such as this? Most of the CIA men in the meeting agreed with Harvey, but they held their tongues. Harvey has destroyed himself today, said John McCone. His usefulness has ended. Not to Angleton, it hadn't. The fissures in Kennedy's government widened as Khrushchev balked at Kennedy's demand that the missiles be withdrawn. The chiefs started to mobilize U.S. armed forces for the invasion they favored. Almost overnight, South Florida became an armed camp, Military convoys clogged highways. The railroad line to Homestead Air Force Base was jammed with military supplies, recalled Justin Glykauf, a CIA man who was there. Barbed wire went up along the beach in Key West, and rockets sprouted along the overseas highway. As one of my last support activities, I obtained 6,000 roadmaps of Cuba for use in what we felt would be an invasion. In Cuba, soldiers wheeled out artillery guns onto the Malacone, the waterfront boulevard of Havana. Across the island, Castro's government called up the armed forces, the militias, and the neighborhood block committees to fight the expected Yankee invasion. After ten days of impasse, nuclear war was no longer a theoretical proposition. It was a looming reality. JFK sent his wife Jackie and their children Caroline and John John to their country house in Virginia. He invited one of his paramours, a 19-year-old college student named Mimi Beardsley, to the White House to divert him as he tried to manage his predicament. Kennedy spent his days wondering if he was going to have to start a war that might end with whole cities and millions of people incinerated by atomic bombs. Beardsley, who spent the night of October 27, 1962, in JFK's bed, observed his tense mood. Coming out of one meeting and going into another, he told her something he could never have admitted in public. I'd rather my children be red than dead. Throughout the crisis, Jack and Bob relied on a Russian diplomat and friend, Georgi Bolshakov, to pass private messages to the Soviet leadership. When the Kremlin's answers seemed conflicted and confusing, JFK sent Bob to see Ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin with one last message. Dobrynin could see from Kennedy's eyes that he had not slept for days. The president is in a grave situation, RFK told him, 
and does not know how to get out of it. We are under very severe stress. In fact, we are under pressure from our military to use force against Cuba. Probably at this very moment the President is sitting down to write a message to Chairman Khrushchev. Bob Kennedy said he was delivering the last U.S. statement on the subject. President Kennedy implores Chairman Khrushchev to accept his offer and to take into consideration the peculiarities of the American system. Even though the President himself is very much against starting a war over Cuba, an irreversible chain of events could occur against his will. That is why the President is appealing directly to Chairman Khrushchev for his help in liquidating this conflict. If the situation continues much longer, the President is not sure that the military will not overthrow him and seize power. The American army could get out of control. Another point not emphasized in the liberal narrative of the October crisis, the President feared that 186 years of constitutional government in the United States of America was in jeopardy. A military coup was a real possibility. The American army could get out of control. That wasn't paperback fiction. It was the reality of power in John Kennedy's Washington. War never came. At noon on Sunday, October 28th, the White House received a communication from Chairman Khrushchev that began, Dear Mr. President, the missiles would be removed, he told Kennedy. The Soviet leader said he had installed the missiles only to help Cuba deter the threat of an American invasion. With the president's assurances that there would be no invasion, Khrushchev said the missiles were unnecessary. The crisis was over. Most of us felt limitless relief, wrote Arthur Schlesinger. Not the men at the Pentagon. They felt limitless dismay. The chiefs heard about the end of the crisis at the same time as the American people did, via a wire service report read on the radio. President Kennedy had made a strategic decision about national and hemispheric security without involving his military commanders. Curtis LeMay wanted to repudiate the deal. Why don't we go in and make a strike on Monday anyway, he asked. He was appalled that Kennedy, who had many hundreds more strategic and tactical nuclear weapons at his disposal than did Khrushchev, had not extracted more gains. We could have not only gotten the missiles out of Cuba, LeMay said, we could have gotten the communists out of Cuba. What has been all but forgotten over time is the conservative critique of Kennedy's diplomacy, which prevailed in the Pentagon, the CIA, the Cuban colony in Miami, and much of the Republican Party, this interpretation would influence a generation of U.S. policymakers. In this view, Khrushchev had successfully bullied Kennedy. By inserting the missiles, then ostensibly backing down, the Russian leader extracted a concession from Washington in the form of Kennedy's guarantee that the United States would not invade Cuba. With a much weaker military hand, the wily communist had come out ahead. The conservative narrative retailed in popular books with titles like Stab in the Back, Illusion and Reality, and Thirteen Mistakes argued that Kennedy had chosen a popular but illusory peace. By the time the Cuban Missile Crisis ended, relations between the Kennedy administration and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Taylor accepted, were at an all-time low, wrote Pentagon historian Stephen L. Reardon. In contrast, Kennedy's public stature and esteem had never been higher— Lauded by his admirers and critiques alike for showing exemplary statesmanship, fortitude, and wisdom in steering the country through the most dangerous confrontation in history, the president emerged with his credibility and prestige measurably enhanced. But to end the crisis, Reardon went on, 
he made compromises and concessions that his military advisors considered in many ways unnecessary and excessive. The consensus on the joint staff was the United States had come out on the poorer end of the bargain. Angleton believed JFK's concessions had not only fumbled an opportunity to liberate Cuba, they also signaled a fatal compromise of U.S. policy with regard to containing communism. There was first Kennedy's unmistakable faltering of will at the Bay of Pigs, Angleton said, and then a year and a half later his reluctance to make good the showdown and exact fair price in the missile crisis by forcing Castro's expulsion from Cuba for having conspired with the Kremlin to bring Soviet nuclear power into the Western Hemisphere. For Angleton, his wife's analogy of JFK to Hamlet was apt. Like the Danish prince, the American president was intelligent, self-absorbed, and indecisive. He lacked will, and the United States was weaker for it. Part 3. Impunity Kim An even-handed assessment of Angleton's career would discern two distinct phases to it, although most of his detractors concentrate on the second, wrote CIA historian David Robarge, from the late 1940s to the early 1960s, he and his staff provided a useful voice of caution in an agency seized with piercing the Iron Curtain to learn about the Soviet intentions and capabilities. And then he lost his way. For roughly the next ten years, distracted by unsubstantiated theories of Soviet strategic deception, Angleton and his staff embarked on counterproductive and sometimes harmful efforts to find moles and prove Moscow's malevolent designs, Robarge said. In the agency's institutional perspective, Angleton faltered at a time when U.S. intelligence was vulnerable. He was losing his sense of proportion and his ability to live with uncertainty right around the time, 1959 through 63, when it became startlingly evident, agents compromised, operations blown, spies uncovered, that something was seriously amiss with Western intelligence and more aggressive C.I. and security were needed. Angleton's disintegration was hastened by a cable from Beirut station that brought sickening news. Kim Philby had turned up in Moscow. The news was almost incomprehensible to Angleton. Philby had taught him the profession. They had worked together in Albania, Italy, Germany, and Ukraine— they had analyzed NSA material and studied KGB techniques. They remained friends after Philby's dismissal in June 1951. Angleton had believed Philby when he said he knew nothing of Burgess's and McLean's spying. For a while, Jim had thought his friend would be cleared and would return to the top of SIS. Later on, he disbelieved Bill Harvey and J. Edgar Hoover, both of whom insisted Philby was a red and when Angleton did have suspicions, Kim had allayed them. After his expulsion from Washington in 1951, Philby retired from secret intelligence work to become a journalist, while taking on occasional missions for SIS. He moved to Beirut, where he wrote about politics and business for The Economist magazine. In 1957, Angleton had asked his colleague Miles Copeland, then working undercover as an oil company executive, to investigate— Copeland arranged for a senior official of the Lebanese Security Service to subject Philby to occasional spot surveillance. The policemen reported back that Philby habitually shook off anyone who was following him. But Philby wasn't meeting up with his KGB handler. 
he was sneaking off for a regular rendezvous with the wife of a friend. Angleton and Copeland were satisfied. Kim was a rogue, not a red. What Angleton didn't know was that his British friends had reopened their investigation of Philby in 1962. New information received from recent defectors made it increasingly clear to the SIS that the Soviets had placed another spy in Washington between 1949 and 1951, someone other than Burgess and McLean. Nicholas Elliott, one of Philby's oldest friends, decided not to tell Angleton. He flew to Beirut to confront Philby. The abashed Philby executed an artful maneuver, offering a partial confession that wove together the indisputable facts he had tipped off McLean with additional lies that he had stopped spying for the Soviets after 1946. He agreed to meet Elliot again to explain further. Another lie. On January 22, 1963, Philby skipped out on his wife and a dinner party. Four days later, he was at Moscow Center, headquarters of the KGB, where he received a warm reception from the comrades whom he had served for decades, yet never met. Angleton was crushed. Philby was his friend, his mentor, his confidant, his booze buddy. And through every meeting, conference, debriefing, confidential aside, and cocktail party, his friend had played him for a fool. The news that Philby had fled to Moscow came as a terrible shock, said Cicely Angleton, the betrayal affected her husband terribly, deeply, she said. It was a bitter blow he never forgot. I tried to repair the damage by telephoning Jim Angleton, said Nicholas Elliott, but it was too late. Angleton had already heard. Philby's final flight was desolating. Angleton's faith in the goodness of his fellow man had never been strong. He had at least clung to the British notion that the inner ring of good men could always be trusted. No more. Poor old Jim Angleton, Elliot told John Le Carre, the former SIS man turned novelist. He'd made such a fuss of Philby when he was the head of the services station in Washington, and when Angleton found out, when I told him, that is, he sort of went the other way. That was British understatement, went the other way. He had trusted him and confided in him far beyond any routine relationship between the colleagues of two friendly countries, Elliot said, the knowledge that he, Jim, the top expert in the world on Soviet espionage, had been totally deceived had a cataclysmic effect on his personality. Jim henceforward found it difficult to trust anybody, to make two and two add up to four. Oversuspicion can sometimes have more tragic results than overcredulity. His tragedy was that he was so often deceived by his own ingenuity, and the consequences were often disastrous. The uncovering of Philby as a mole was without a doubt one of the most important events in Jim's professional life, said Walter Elder, a senior CIA officer. The affair had a deep and profound effect on Jim. Angleton suffered severe psychic damage, said Cleveland Cram, a senior operations officer who later wrote a top-secret study of Angleton. If Philby achieved nothing else in the Soviet service, said Cram, he would have earned his keep by the peculiar thraldom he obtained over Angleton's thinking. Bereft and betrayed, Angleton sought certainty. He gravitated to the theories of Anatoly Golitsyn. The former KGB man lent credence to the suspicions Angleton had entertained since Popoff's arrest and execution. Golitsyn's insider account of KGB deception operations was intellectually appealing. 
suggesting a historic continuity in Soviet intelligence since the 1920s. If one of his long-buried fears about Philby had been confirmed, Angleton concluded, not quite logically, that another long-buried fear about the mole must be true as well. Compounding Angleton's unease, Galitsyn had left the United States. After a second meeting with Robert Kennedy in December 1962, the former KGB man gave up on the U.S. government. The FBI didn't trust him. The CIA's Soviet Russia division, led by George Kisavalter, was uninterested in his theories and unwilling to share their files. In contrast, MI5, the British FBI, embraced him. In February 1963, Golitsyn and his wife and daughter moved to England, where he was greeted by Arthur Martin, chief of counterintelligence for MI5. Golitsyn told his new hosts a disturbing story. Just before he left the Soviet Union in 1961, he had had contact with the KGB's Department 13, responsible for assassinations, where he heard the KGB was planning to kill a high-level figure in Europe in order to get a Soviet asset into a top position. The sudden death of Hugh Gateskill, leader of the British Labour Party, in January 1963 was suspicious, he said. After a short illness, Gateskill had died of a rare blood condition. Gateskill, Golitsyn said, was poisoned by the KGB. Golitsyn pointed out that Gateskill was pro-American, while his most likely successor as Labor Party leader, Harold Wilson, took a more independent and leftist position toward Washington. The assassination of Gateskill, he said, delivered Wilson, Moscow's agent of influence, into a position of power. The British, spooked by Philby's defection, believed him. Angleton would later deny that he believed Gateskill was assassinated, but he would come to express certainty that Wilson was a Soviet agent of influence, which he most certainly was not. As Angleton lost perspective, he retained authority. As he repudiated uncertainty, he was entrusted with complexity. As his judgment failed, he won more responsibility. His convoluted certitudes soaked in alcohol would eventually bring him to the brink of being a fool. Christopher Andrew, a leading historian of Anglo-American intelligence, concluded Angleton's belief that the hostility between the Soviet Union and China was a KGB deception operation demonstrated that he did not have the judgment required even of a junior intelligence officer. Yet man of power called on Angleton for assistance. In May 1963, for example, Angleton advised the Joint Chiefs of Staff on U.S. policy toward Cuba, which had been foundering since the October crisis. Declared U.S. policy still called for the immediate overthrow of Castro and his government. Angleton was asked to assess Cuba's defenses. Provocation the Castro communist regime will remain in power for the indefinite future with its security and control apparatus relatively intact. That was Bill Harvey writing in a comprehensive memo on the state of the CIA's operations in Cuba one month after the October crisis. Harvey had gained prestige in the agency for his tunnel into communist East Berlin and other feats of daring do. Dulles brought him into the Cuba operation when talk turned to assassinating Castro. Dick Helms put him in charge of the Cuba task force that the Kennedy brothers shut down. Now Harvey was on the way out for cursing Bob Kennedy, and he was blunt about the CIA's poor prospects. Castro, he wrote, had the capability not only of crushing unsupported resistance activity, but of making operational conditions in Cuba increasingly difficult. 
Harvey's memo, all 17 single-spaced pages of it, arrived on Helms's desk on November 27, 1962. Helms forwarded it to Director McCone, who agreed with its principles. Kennedy's government was fractured. The liberals in the White House assumed Harvey had been relieved of all Cuban responsibilities after his profane outburst at RFK during the missile crisis. Arthur Schlesinger said, The CIA, taking care of its own, made Harvey station chief in Rome, where he was soon sodden with drink. Not that soon. In his memo, Harvey soberly explained to Helms and McCone how Kennedy's handling of the missile crisis undermined the CIA's ability to operate on the island. The assurance of no invasion and no support of an invasion will, in effect, constitute giving to Castro and his regime a certain degree of sanctuary, he wrote. Angleton agreed. He thought Harvey had been mistreated by Bob Kennedy. He thought U.S. policy toward Cuba was adrift, if not feckless. And he thought the Rome station was a worthy reward for Harvey's service. I got him the job, Angleton boasted. In mid-1963, Angleton made his most ambitious contribution to U.S. policy toward Cuba, a secret working paper entitled Cuban Control and Action Capabilities. For the CIA men and other advocates of overthrowing Castro, the spring of 1963 was disheartening. In late March, Attorney General Robert Kennedy ordered the FBI to crack down on Cuban exiles who were using South Florida to stage armed attacks on ships doing business with the communist regime. Two dozen militants were ordered not to leave metropolitan Miami without permission. The Cuban colony exploded in outrage. The Cuban Revolutionary Council, the umbrella organization of exile groups that planned to establish a new pro-American government in Havana, dissolved in acrimonious denunciation of President Kennedy. The national security agencies in Washington were concerned. Castro was getting stronger. The communists were solidifying their foothold in the Western Hemisphere, while Kennedy was pursuing a nuclear test ban treaty with the Soviets that the Joint Chiefs of Staff thought was ill-advised. The situation was urgent. In a meeting on May 1, 1963, the Joint Chiefs resurrected a secret plan known by the deceptively bucolic codename of Northwoods. The Northwoods plan, first developed after the Bay of Pigs, sought to create a justification, a pretext for a U.S. invasion of Cuba. Since Castro could no longer be overthrown from within, thanks to Kennedy's weakness, the only solution was to remove him from without. The idea was to orchestrate a crime that placed the U.S. government in the apparent position of suffering defensible grievances from a rash and irresponsible government in Havana. Then the president could declare war and send in the 82nd Airborne Division. One Northwoods scenario envisioned the use of violence on the streets of America. We could develop a communist Cuban terror campaign in the Miami area, in other Florida cities, and even in Washington— the terror campaign could be pointed at Cuban refugees seeking haven in the United States. We could sink a boatload of Cubans en route to Florida, real or simulated. That merciless parenthetical makes it clear that the Pentagon's planners were willing to kill innocent persons who opposed Castro and to blame their deaths on the Cuban leader in order to justify a U.S. invasion. Kennedy wasn't interested in so-called pretext operations. When Lyman Lemnitzer had first presented the Northwoods concept at a White House meeting in March 1962, JFK had brusquely rejected it. With Castro emboldened in the spring of 1963, the Joint Chiefs revived the Northwoods option. They recommended an engineered provocation 
which would provide advantages in control, timing, simplicity, and security. The chiefs passed their recommendation to Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, who ignored it. The Kennedy White House preferred the idea of autonomous operations against Castro. The result was that, after May 1, 1963, the U.S. government effectively had two divergent Cuba policies. The White House policy, led by Robert Kennedy, sought to foment a rebellion against the Cuban government, possibly in conjunction with the assassination of Castro. The Defense Department, the Armed Forces, and the CIA had a different approach. They sought to create or find a pretext for a full-blown U.S. invasion, possibly in conjunction with the assassination of Castro. With U.S. policy in flux, Angleton offered clarity. Under the counterintelligence responsibilities entrusted to him, he contributed his assessment of the Cuban target. What were Cuba's capabilities? What would the U.S. military have to overcome in order to retake Cuba from the communists? Could Castro be overthrown from within, as the Kennedy brothers assumed? Angleton studied the files and wrote up his findings in a 27-page paper. On May 23, 1963, he distributed the document to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and heads of 15 other U.S. agencies. The paper, he stated in his cover letter, was not merely a provisional statement on the Cuban situation, but an all-source assessment of the communist control system. Angleton intended his paper to serve as nothing less than the foundation of a new national policy. The distribution of his Cuban Control and Action Capabilities paper illuminated more than Angleton's high standing in the U.S. intelligence community. It also revealed the alienation of the Kennedy White House and U.S. national security agencies in mid-1963. Angleton sent his analysis to the Pentagon, the CIA, and NSA, as well as to the intelligence chiefs of the State Department, Army, Navy, and Air Force. He also copied domestic security agencies such as the Customs Service, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, and the Justice Department's Interdepartmental Committee on Internal Security. Angleton chose not to send his assessment to the White House, the National Security Council, or the Attorney General, who styled himself the leader of his brother's Cuba policy. The Cuban Capabilities Memo is one of the most important documents bearing Angleton's name to ever surface. It confirms his leading role in U.S.-Cuba policy in 1963, while also demonstrating his intellectual power. Angleton's analysis of the strengths of Castro's government was lucid, historical, and comprehensive. Before the events of late October 1962, he began, the Cuban government had been engaged for a little over two years on measures to ensure a complete control over the Cuban population under a centralized authority resting largely in the hands of the Prime Minister, Fidel Castro, and his immediate coterie. Angleton's analysis echoed Bill Harvey's. President Kennedy's no-invasion pledge had demoralized Castro's foes. After the promise of outside interference was dispelled, Angleton wrote, greater caution in expression of sentiments appeared. The disappointment in cancellation of action also caused the withdrawal of many persons from any show of support for anti-government ideas or actions and produced an attitude of reserve and mistrust. Castro had emerged from the October crisis with up to 400,000 men and women now serving in the Army and Navy. Another bulwark of support for the communist regime, Angleton noted, were foreign friendship societies like the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which sent sympathizers to the island who came back indoctrinated with pro-communist messages. Angleton had reviewed multiple reports of travelers who wished to conceal their visits to Cuba. An American citizen, for example, he explained, 
can enter Mexico with a tourist card, not even a passport, and obtain a separate visa to Cuba from the Cuban consulate in Mexico City. Emphasis added. He can go to Cuba and return supplied with a new tourist card obtained in Cuba without any indication that he has ever been there. Angleton was prescient. That is exactly what the defector Lee Oswald would attempt to do four months later. Thus, Angleton's Cuban Capabilities Memo is also an important document related to the assassination of President Kennedy. The paper reveals Angleton's personal interest in the Cuban consulate in Mexico City in mid-1963. It illuminates a fact that Angleton would hide for the rest of his life. When the defector Lee Oswald showed up at the Cuban consulate in September 1963, Angleton was not surprised or uninformed. He was prepared. Go Easy On a June night in 1963, four FBI agents sat in a car outside the lone terminal of National Airport in Washington, D.C. They were watching for the arrival of an old friend, Johnny Rosselli, incoming from Los Angeles. Rosselli was a mobster who cultivated attention. He wore silk suits and dated pop singers and Hollywood actresses. Skimming the take from casinos in Las Vegas was one of his specialties, Killing competitors was another. He was suspected of involvement in 13 murders. The FBI men wanted to take him down. Rosselli knew he was being tailed by the FBI and pretended not to care. If the feds crowded him too much, he could say truthfully that he had friends in high places. When the FBI men saw him get into a waiting car driven by Bill Harvey of the CIA, they were irked. Why was a senior government official meeting socially with an organized crime figure? One of them called their liaison to the agency, Sam Papich, who just so happened to be having dinner with Jim Angleton at his house in Arlington. Papich took the call and then told Angleton, Look, let's go very easy on this, Angleton said. With practiced dexterity, Angleton called Harvey's house and spoke to his wife, Clara Grace Harvey, known as C.G. She said Bill was at Duke Zebert's, the plush restaurant on L Street that had succeeded Harvey's Seafood Grill as the restaurant for people who wanted to be seen. Angleton dialed up the restaurant and was put through to the table where Harvey sat with Rosselli. There were murmured exchanges. Papich called off the FBI surveillance team. The FBI felt obliged to report Harvey's contact with the known crime figure to their bosses. Angleton did not. He was under no illusions about what the two men were discussing. As recently as March 1963, Harvey was still in charge of the agency's ZR rifle assassination program. I knew he was not a frivolous man, Angleton said. He did not have to guess that assassination was on the menu at Duke Zebert's that night. Angleton was thinking about assassination himself. In July 1963, he asked the wizards of the agency's technical services division if they could hypnotize an assassin to kill a certain Cuban leader. Castro was naturally our discussion point, said a CIA officer who worked on the MK Ultra program under Angleton's direction. The challenge was, could you get somebody gung-ho enough that they would go in and get him? Angleton's people set up an experiment in Mexico City. They tried to hypnotize a Mexican agent and failed utterly. Angleton saw no harm in experimenting. Hypnotizing an assassin to kill Castro wasn't irrational or immoral or even crazy to his way of thinking. 
It was the applied science of counterintelligence in service of defeating communism. It was necessary. At 45 years of age, Angleton was impressive and ominous. Most nights he worked late at his office. He sat behind the raised desk stacked with files. As always, he kept the room dim with just one desk lamp spotlighting his work. The only lights came from the tip of Angleton's inevitable cigarette, wrote biographer Tom Mangold, glowing like a tiny star in the dark firmament of his private planet and the dirty brown sun of his desk lamp permanently wreathed by nicotine clouds. One awestruck FBI man saw him as a wraith. His hair was slicked back from a pale forehead, a bony blade of nose, sunken cheeks, and an elegantly pointed chin, a chiseled, cadaverous face. His deep-set eyes were emphasized by arched eyebrows, framed by horn-rimmed bifocals and lit with controlled fire. He was stooped and slightly twisted. He was very British in cut and manner, said Joseph Persico, a historian of espionage, who saw his face close up in an interview. A collection of angles, clearly impatient with stupidity, tall and cadaverous, the most sinister man I have ever seen. Mole Hunts Angleton was now acting out his intellectual passion on a grand scale. Even if his hand remained hidden, his decisions made headlines. One appeared atop the front page of London's Daily Telegraph in July 1963. Soviet defector gets British asylum. Major defection, says Americans. Anatoly Golitsyn, living in a cozy MI5 safe house in the British countryside, read the headline with dread. He was comfortable, to say the least, receiving a stipend of £10,000 a month from the British officials intrigued by his theory that Hugh Gateskill had been assassinated by the KGB. Now someone had leaked his presence. The Telegraph, citing unimpeachable U.S. sources, reported that the British intelligence service had given asylum to a major Soviet defector. The New York Times reported the leak might have come from Benjamin Bradley, chief of Newsweek magazine's Washington bureau and a friend of the president. Ultimately, the leak would be traced back to Langley. Angleton wanted Golitsyn back, says Robarge, the CIA historian, and may have contrived, through a leak to a British tabloid, to force him out of England. Golitsyn felt he had little choice but to return to the United States. Questions about Golitsyn's reliability returned with him. A CIA evaluation in September 1963 reported Golitsyn was dangling before the agency very enticing and intriguing statements in exchange for acceptance, entree, support, and control. On the face of these statements about Hugh Gateskill and Harold Wilson, they are far removed from reality but are accusations which, if true, would be a great significance. Golitsyn's statements, the doctor concluded, were evidence of his feeling of omnipotence and omniscience, which is viewed as abnormal psychologically. Angleton dismissed the diagnosis. He thought Golitsyn the sanest man in the world. The notion that he might be considered mentally ill would set off the greatest peals of glee in the KGB, he said. Angleton wanted, no, needed, to believe. He was undaunted by the paucity of evidence to support Golitsyn's theories. In the spring of 1963, the FBI investigation of Peter Carlo had found nothing to confirm that he was Golitsyn's Sasha, the putative mole. Carlo, after waiting on administrative leave for more than a year, was still hoping to become chief of the Technical Services Division. 
In September 1963, he was forced to resign, the first victim of Angleton's mole hunts, but not the last. Galitzin had settled in upstate New York, where Angleton brought him raw source reports and classified CIA files, which was illegal and operationally reckless. Angleton didn't care. Golitsyn was so enormous to the Western world, Angleton gushed after his return in the summer of 1963, we immediately moved on those cases which were perishable, he said, the French, the British, and ourselves. So began the disastrous mole hunt that would paralyze and divide the CIA for the next seven years. Angleton's mole hunt is often described in singular terms as a unified search for the spy or spies lurking in the ranks of the agency. Operationally, however, Angleton's mole hunt was multifaceted, consisting of dozens of different mole hunts, some targeting individuals, others focused on components within the CIA, and always employing a variety of investigative techniques. Angleton's first mole hunt focused on the British intelligence services. Golitsyn said his study of British files indicated Graham Mitchell, deputy to MI5 chief Roger Hollis, was a KGB spy. Angleton's British acolytes endorsed the charge. In September 1963, Hollis himself flew to Washington with the embarrassing mission of reporting to the Americans that his own aid was under investigation. Mitchell, it was later determined, was never a Soviet spy. The second mole hunt targeted the French intelligence service, SDECE, which Angleton believed, with more reason, had been penetrated by the KGB. Indignant French officials demanded a meeting to respond to Angleton's charges, which were supported by Philippe Thirode de Vajoli, a disaffected French counterintelligence officer. Angleton agreed to see Colonel Georges de Lenorient, chief of French counterintelligence, in late November. Angleton's third mole hunt in 1963 targeted the CIA's station in Mexico City, and it involved the defector Lee Oswald. It, too, ended badly. Oswald again Angleton's people had not forgotten about or lost track of Lee Oswald since his defection in October 1959 in the offices of the Special Investigations Group located around the corner from Angleton's suite, Betty E. Gerder still controlled access to Oswald's 201 file. All U.S. government reporting on Oswald went into the SIG file, a 1961 State Department cable on Oswald's marriage to a Russian woman, a 1962 Navy memo about his return to the United States, an FBI interview with a surly and uncooperative Oswald outside his home in Fort Worth, Texas, in August 1962. If Oswald was a lone nut, as cliché would later have it, he was the rare, isolated sociopath of interest to the CIA's counterintelligence staff. The attention was justified. If there was anything more important to the CIA than a defector to the Soviet Union, it was a returning defector like Oswald, who had presumptively been contacted by the KGB and Soviet Domestic Security Agency, the MVD, during his two years of residence. Oswald's redefection should have been the highest priority for the intelligence community, Angleton later told investigators. It was. Angleton paid attention when J. Edgar Hoover sent him three more reports on Oswald in the fall of 1963. The first, an FBI memo from Dallas, arrived on September 24th. Jane Roman signed the routing slip to accept delivery. FBI agent James Hostie had been assigned to keep tabs on Oswald's wife, Marina. Hostie reported that Oswald drank to excess and beat his wife, 
and had once passed out leaflets for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. He helpfully attached material on the un-American ways of the FPCC. Two weeks later, Roman signed for another FBI report. Oswald had been arrested in August while passing out FPCC leaflets on a New Orleans street corner. The ex-Marine had gotten into a heated argument with three members of an anti-Castro organization called the Cuban Student Directorate. He was arrested for disturbing the peace. Angleton was certainly interested in the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which Oswald now purported to represent. It was one of those friendship societies that sustained the Havana regime. It was also a target for agency action, as Angleton probably knew. As liaison to the FBI, Angleton was privy to all CIA communications with the Bureau. On September 16th, John Tilton, an officer in the CIA's Cuba operation, told Sam Papich that the agency was giving some consideration to countering the activities of the FPCC in a foreign country. Given Angleton's reputation and stature, it would have been unusual, if not unthinkable, for Tilton's branch to mount an operation against the FPCC without Angleton's knowledge. Naturally, Jane Roman paid attention when another report on Oswald came clattering in by teletype on Tuesday afternoon, October 8th. From Mexico City, Station Chief Wynne Scott reported that a man calling himself Oswald had contacted a consular office at the Soviet embassy. In another cable, Scott reported that Oswald had also visited the Cuba embassy in Mexico City, where the consulate was located. Oswald's visit was Angleton's responsibility. Scott's cable was slugged LC Improve, the agency's code name for counter-espionage involving Soviet intelligence services worldwide, Angleton's undisputed domain. Angleton responded with discretion. Jane Roman drafted and sent a cable to the FBI, the Navy, and the State Department reporting that Oswald, wrongly described as a six-foot-tall, heavy-set man, had been seen in Mexico City. Then she and Betty Egerter drafted a separate and different cable to Wynne Scott, which they then gave to Bill Hood, Chief of Operations in the Western Hemisphere, for approval. The second cable, sent on October 10th, provided the Mexico City station with biographical information about Oswald, as well as a more accurate physical description. The cable, also approved by Tom Karamasinis, said nothing about Oswald's recent arrest in New Orleans and his pro-Castro activities on behalf of the FPCC. With the three FBI reports in hand, Angleton's people could have described Oswald to Scott as a law-breaking communist and sometimes violent supporter of Castro. Instead, the October 10th cable was oddly reassuring. Citing a May 1962 State Department cable, headquarters said, 20 months of life in Soviet Union have had a maturing effect on Oswald. The agency had not received any new information on Oswald since, according to the second cable drafted by Angleton's aides. Latest headquarters info was ODACID, State Department, report dated May 1962 saying Oswald is still U.S. citizen and both he and his Soviet wife have exit permits and Department State had given approval for their travel with their infant child to USA. If the October 10th cable was to be believed and when Scott believed it, the CIA had gathered no information about the maturing Oswald since his return from the Soviet Union 17 months before, in fact, the CIA knew all about his latest doings. The cable was intentionally deceptive, as Jane Roman would later admit. When shown a copy of the cable many years later, she said, Yeah, I mean, I'm signing off on something I know isn't true. 
In retirement, Bill Hood had no explanation for why the CIA didn't share the most recent FBI reporting on Oswald with Mexico City, save that he didn't think it was smelly. I don't see any master hand in it, he said. If there was a master hand, it was Angleton's. The CIA's latest headquarters information on Oswald was not 17 months old. It was less than two weeks old. Angleton's staff had received virtually all of the FBI's reporting on Oswald and shared none of it. In the parlance of CIA operations, Angleton's omission was justifiable. If Oswald's activities were part of an authorized covert operation, when Scott had no need to know that Angleton was using Oswald for an intelligence purpose. The timestamp on the cable dates Angleton's deception with precision. 10 October 1963, 5.29 p.m. Washington time. At that moment, President John F. Kennedy was finishing up a busy day in the Oval Office. He had spent the morning meeting with his national security advisors about the deteriorating situation in Vietnam. He ended the day conferring with two leaders of newly independent African nations. He had 42 days to live. Within a week of Oswald's visit to Mexico City, Angleton launched the mole hunt in Mexico. This mole hunt underscores a reality overlooked by Angleton's admirers and critics alike. Angleton's mole hunting extended beyond the agency's Soviet Russia division. In the fall of 1963, the CIA's Mexico City station was mounting multiple operations to recruit spies in the Cuban consulate and to disrupt the embassy's political activities. These efforts were led by David Phillips, a protege of Dick Helms. They were reported to Bill Harvey, who was still involved in Cuban operations from the Rome station. When Scott boasted of the thoroughness of his coverage of the Cuban compound, which housed the embassy and the consulate, we intercept their mail, photograph all people who go in and out of the embassy, cover their telephones completely, and within a few hours of the conversations have resumes of all the telephone calls, he said in early 1963. Angleton worried that these operations might be compromised by an FBI informant who was actually a Soviet double agent. He wanted to determine if the KGB had any spies in the Mexico City station. The mole hunt in Mexico began on October 8, 1963, when a team of technicians from the Office of Security flew to the Mexican capital, their luggage bulging with tape recorders and polygraph equipment. They were acting on orders from Bill Hood, Chief of Western Hemisphere Operations, and Angleton's longtime friend. Between October 8th and 18th, the Office of Security team grilled 21 CIA employees in Mexico about their loyalties. The mission was to discover if anyone has been or is now reporting to or employed by another intelligence organization, including local police. The employees were hooked up to the polygraph machine used to detect physical stress. In CIA lingo, they were fluttered. The first employees questioned were the three men who watched the Soviet and Cuban diplomatic offices in Mexico City, the very offices that the defector Oswald had visited ten days before. Whether they were asked about Oswald is unknown. By early November, the interrogation team had written up reports on them and 18 other CIA employees in Mexico City and Monterey. The mole hunt in Mexico found some financial irregularities and some loose talk among family members, but no security breaches. As far as the Office of Security and the counterintelligence staff were concerned, there was no mole in the Mexico City station. All the while, Lee Oswald remained a figure of continuing interest. 
Angleton received no further reports on Oswald's contacts with the Soviet or Cuban intelligence officers, at least none that we know of. He received no indication that Oswald had obtained the visa that he sought to travel to Cuba and the Soviet Union, but he remained concerned about Oswald's visit to the Cuban consulate. In his May 1963 memo to the Joint Chiefs, Angleton identified the consulate as a locus of Cuban intelligence activity in the Western Hemisphere. From the latest FBI reports, he knew of Oswald's involvement with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. If Sam Papich knew the CIA operatives had targeted the FPCC for COINTEL Pro-style dirty tricks, Angleton surely knew it. For all of these reasons and more, Angleton had to be concerned about Oswald's Cuban contacts in Mexico City, but he did not care to share his concern. He would conceal what he knew about that sensitive subject for the rest of his life. On November 15th, Jane Roman signed for the latest FBI report on Oswald. From New Orleans, Senior Agent Warren DeBrays had filed a more detailed memo on Oswald's pro-Castro activities. If Angleton scanned the first page, he learned that Oswald had gone back to Texas after contacting the Cubans and the Soviets in Mexico City. Angleton knew Oswald was in Dallas. Angleton always sought to give the impression that he knew very little about Oswald before November 22, 1963. For the chief of the agency's counterintelligence staff, that was a frail defense. His staff had monitored Oswald's movements for four years. As the former Marine moved from Moscow to Minsk to Fort Worth to New Orleans to Mexico City to Dallas, the Special Investigations Group received reports on him everywhere he went. An epic counterintelligence failure culminated on Angleton's watch. It was bigger than the Philby affair and bloodier. Dallas You could hear the parade coming down Main Street, recalled Bill Newman. You could hear the cheering of the people, and I could remember seeing the president's car turn right onto Houston Street and go that short block and turn left on Elm. His car was out the width of one lane from the curb. It was not right against the curb. We were, of course, looking at the car coming towards us, and it was a hundred feet or more, maybe, from us, and the first two shots rang out, kind of like a boom, boom, like that. And at the time, I thought somebody throwed a couple of firecrackers beside the car, and I thought, you know, that's a pretty poor trick to be pulling on the president. Bill Newman was 22 years old, a plumber's apprentice. He had come to Dealey Plaza with his wife, Gail, and their two children. They were excited to see the president and the first lady coming down Elm Street, JFK and Jackie sitting side by side, waving. But as the car got closer to us, Newman went on, you could see the blood on Governor Connolly. You could see the president. He had a—he was sort of turning his head in toward the crowd, and you could tell something was most definitely wrong. Just as the car got straight in front of us, in the back seat of the car where he was sitting ten or twelve feet from us, the third shot rang out. Newman spoke with a steady, well-modulated voice forty-plus years later— his account had not changed since the day it happened, when he told the story to a TV reporter. Now retired from the plumbing business, he and Gail had nine grandchildren. Newman could see the nightmare unfolding. Of course, I knew most definitely that was a gunshot, he said, and the side of his head blew off. 
You could see the white matter and the red, and he fell across the seat over into Mrs. Kennedy's lap, and she hollered out, Oh my God, no, they've shot Jack. And I turned to Gail. I said, No, that's it. And I hit the ground, because at that moment, what was going through my mind was that shot was coming right over the top of our heads. That shot was coming right over the top of our heads. As Bill and Gail Newman and their kids lay on the grass, the crowd around them roiled in panic at the sound of gunfire. Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry was riding in the lead car of the motorcade. When he heard the shots, he shouted into his radio, Get a man on top of that triple underpass, the area above and behind the Newmans, and see what happened up there. What Curry meant to say, he later told the Warren Commission, was, Get someone up in the railroad yard and check. He was talking about the place that would come to be known as the Grassy Knoll. As the motorcade careened away toward the Stemmons Freeway, the shocked crowd looked to the upper floors of the Texas School Book Depository, from which some of the shots had sounded. The fifth car behind President Kennedy's limousine was the press car. It carried four men, Malcolm Kilduff, Kennedy's acting press secretary, Merriman Smith, the White House correspondent for United Press International, and two other wire service reporters. The hard-drinking Smith had shaken his daily hangover, straightened his tie, and was paying close attention. No sooner had he heard the report of multiple gunshots that he glimpsed the crowd's freeze-frame reactions. A man sitting on the curb, a couple and their kids sprawled on the grass, some colored kids running away, a lady wearing a babushka, a man with an umbrella, a motorcycle cop abandoning his Harley-Davidson and running up a grassy embankment, Nine minutes later, at a payphone in Parkland Hospital, Smith dictated to his editor the details of what he had seen. Shots had been fired at President Kennedy. Some of the Secret Service agents thought the gunfire was from an automatic weapon fired to the right rear of the President's car, probably from a grassy knoll to which police rushed, Smith said. He had coined the phrase that would never be forgotten, a grassy knoll to which police rushed, Scores of eyewitnesses were later interviewed by the FBI, the Dallas police, and reporters. By the most conservative reading, about 40% of them, some 50 people, including 21 law enforcement officers, had the same experience as Bill Newman and Merriman Smith. They believed a gunshot had come from in front of the motorcade from the grassy knoll. Bystanders converged on the spot and the parking lot by the railroad yard. Behind a stockade fence, they found a sea of cars, some cigarette butts, and footprints. If there had been a gunman hidden there, he was gone. Robert Kennedy was eating a chicken salad sandwich and talking Justice Department business with an aide at Hickory Hill when he received a phone call from J. Edgar Hoover and then another call confirming the president was dead. Kennedy's world vanished. He called John McCone at CIA headquarters and told him to come over. The two men had become close over the last two years. Like Bob Kennedy, McCone was a practicing Catholic, the shared politics and personal tragedy. Bob and Ethel helped McCone when his wife succumbed to cancer. There was almost nothing we could say to one another, recalled McCone of that day. The two men went outside and strolled on the vast lawn of Hickory Hill. They talked about the president's enemies in the CIA and in Miami. Robert Kennedy would later tell Arthur Schlesinger about the conversation. 
You know, at the time I asked McCone if they, meaning CIA-backed enemies, had killed my brother, and I asked him in a way that he couldn't lie to me, and they hadn't. When Kennedy and McCone returned to the house, the TV news reported that a suspect had been arrested in the shooting of the president, a defector named Oswald, a supporter of Castro, a leftist, a communist. After lunch on November 22nd, Angleton had just started his long-awaited confrontation with French intelligence officials over Golitsyn's allegations of penetration. He was making his case to Colonel de Lenorian, the chief of SDECE, when someone came into the room to report that President Kennedy had been shot dead. The meeting was canceled. Angleton hastened back to Langley. When the transistor radios around the CIA offices reported that a suspect named Oswald had been arrested, a senior analyst in the counterintelligence staff named Paul Hartman spoke up. You know, there's a 201 file on this, expletive, he said, and SIG has it. Indeed, the special investigations group did have a file on Kennedy's accused killer. It was a pregnant moment for Angleton. He was responsible for tracking defectors. He had put Oswald's name in the lingual mail opening list in 1959, Jane Roman had signed for three FBI reports on Oswald in the last two months. His friend Bill Hood had signed off on the mole hunt in Mexico. He had called attention to the intelligence function of the Cuban consulate in his Cuban capabilities memo. Angleton would never speak publicly of such things. Later that day, Angleton was called into a meeting in Dick Helm's office. The deputy director was worried that CIA personnel might be involved in the killing of JFK. Make sure we had no one in Dallas, Helms told an aide when he heard the news that day. Helms wanted all of his top lieutenants in the same room. His deputy Tom Karamasinas was there. So were Desmond Fitzgerald, the chief of the anti-Castro operation, and John Witten, chief of the Mexico desk. Helms gave orders. Angleton would handle liaison with the FBI. Fitzgerald would review Oswald's Cuban contacts. Witten would write up all incoming information in a summary report. Witten was well qualified for the assignment. A career officer who spoke excellent German, he had distinguished himself in several counter-espionage investigations in Europe. Witten spent the rest of the day collating reports. Late that night, he wrote up the agency's first report on Kennedy's assassination, which Helms passed to John McCone. The director shared it with the new president, Lyndon Johnson, on the morning of November 23rd. As far as we could see, Witten explained, Oswald was the assassin, and there was no indication that we had that there were other participants in the assassination, and there was no indication, visible indication, that he was a Soviet or Cuban agent, even though the possibility could not be excluded. Millions of people in the United States and around the world winced and wept. On a Hollywood backlot, costumed cowboys sat down on the job, heads bowed, in New York City, construction workers put hard hats to their hearts. In Harvard Square, a crowd rushed a newsstand for the latest news. In Columbus, Mississippi, high school students cheered the death of the liberal president and a teacher ordered her class to sing Dixie in gratitude. People everywhere gathered around their televisions and radios, which amplified and spread the news from Dallas. The suspected assassin was a communist. He had even defended Fidel Castro on a New Orleans radio station. NBC News played a tape recording of Oswald. The president hadn't been dead two hours, 
and tens of millions of Americans heard the voice of the suspected assassin defending the principles of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Unbeknownst to the American people, the effort to link the accused assassin to the notorious FPCC emanated from CIA propaganda assets. The tape of Oswald's radio appearance had been made by a man named Edward Butler. He ran a right-wing organization called the Information Council of the Americas, which promoted an anti-communist political agenda in Cuba and the Caribbean. Butler mixed with the FBI and CIA men working in New Orleans. When Oswald appeared as an FPCC spokesman, Butler taped his radio appearance as evidence of communist perfidy. After JFK was dead, he was glad to share the tape with NBC News. The linkage of Oswald to the FPCC was corroborated by the agency's assets in Miami and New Orleans. Within hours of the announcement of JFK's death, the leaders of the Miami-based Cuban Student Directorate were calling reporters with details of their encounter with Oswald and his pro-Castro ways. The reporters they spoke to did not know the leaders of the directorate were paid by a CIA program with the codename of AMSPEL. The Cuban agents were run by George Joannides, chief of the psychological warfare branch of the Wave Station in Miami. He gave the directorate $51,000 a month. Within 48 hours, the CIA's favorite young Cubans published a new sheet declaring Oswald and Castro were the presumed assassins. It was the first JFK conspiracy theory to reach public print. It was funded by Joannides, who was Dick Helms' man in Miami. Late on the night of November 22nd, Angleton received a call from the Secret Service. They had learned from the FBI that Oswald had visited Mexico City in October. What did the CIA know? A lot, said Angleton. He shared several cables he had received from Wynn Scott. One concerned surveillance photographs of six unidentified visitors to the Cuban embassy in Mexico City. Another concerned a passenger manifest identifying three recent air travelers from Mexico City, one of whom might have been Oswald. Angleton passed this material to the Secret Service on the condition that it not be shared with anyone. The next day, Mangleton shared more intelligence with the FBI. He handed Sam Papich six items about Oswald. They were letters intercepted by the lingual mail surveillance program. Three came from Oswald's mother. Mangleton thought they were significant. Two of the letters he told Hoover in a memo indicated Oswald was known to his wife's friends in the Soviet Union as Alec, he noted that the FBI had already discovered that a rifle of the same type used in the assassination had been ordered in the name of Alec Hiddell and delivered to a post office box registered in Oswald's name. Under the circumstances, Angleton told Hoover, the fact Oswald was known to his Russian friends as Alec may be significant. In Dallas, Oswald was in police custody and denying everything. He denied he had gone to Mexico City. He denied he had ordered the rifle found in the Texas School Book Depository. When brought before reporters, he denied shooting the president. I'm just a patsy, he shouted before he was led back to his cell. Angleton took a call from Anatoly Golitsyn, who said that the Soviet government would have monitored any defector who, like Oswald, had served in the U.S. Army, Navy, or Marine Corps. The modus operandi with any defector from anybody's armed forces to the Soviet Union required that he go through processing by the 13th Department of the KGB, their assassination department, Golitsyn said. Angleton had to suspect Moscow or Havana might be behind the crime in Dallas. 
Like the CIA-funded Cuban students, he was not averse to linking Oswald to Castro. On the panicky night of November 23rd, Helms's deputy, Tom Karamasinas, sent Wynne Scott a message warning him not to take any actions that could prejudice U.S. freedom of action on the entire question of Cuban responsibility. Questioned about the event many years later, Angleton allowed that he had a vague recollection of Karamasinas's order. If Tom intervened, it was for good reason, because he had superior information, Angleton said. He, too, wanted to preserve the U.S. freedom of action in the wake of JFK's death. The CIA's gambit wasn't hard to figure. It was the Northwoods concept. If the crime in Dallas could be blamed on Castro, the United States would have a justification for the overdue elimination of the communist regime in Havana. In the Cuban capital, Fidel Castro intuited the CIA's machinations. The Cuban leader was brooding aloud into a microphone. When he first heard the news from Dallas, Castro was worried. Malo noticias, he told a visitor. Bad news. Now he was speaking publicly about the killing of the American president. As a revolutionary, Castro said he hated systems, not men. Yes, Kennedy had once sought to destroy his revolution. Since the October crisis, he had also shown moderation. Chaos tras el asesinato de Kennedy. Cuales fueron los motivos reales? What is behind the assassination of Kennedy? What were the real motives? Castro asked. What forces, factors, circumstances were at work behind this sudden and unexpected event that occurred yesterday? Even up to this moment, the events that led to the murder of the President of the United States continued to be confused, obscure, and unclear. He warned that Cuba would be blamed. We foresaw that from these incidents there could be a new trap, an ambush, a Machiavellian plot against our country, he declared that on the very blood of their assassinated president there might be unscrupulous people who would begin to work out immediately an aggressive policy against Cuba if the aggressive policy had not been linked beforehand to the assassination, because it might or might not have been. But there is no doubt that this policy is being built on the still warm blood and unburied body of their tragically assassinated president. Dear Mr. Attorney General, wrote Dick Helms on his personal stationery on November 23rd. There is nothing for me to say that has not been said better by many others. When you sent me to see the President on Tuesday afternoon, he never looked better, seemed more confident, or appeared more in control of the crushing forces around him. Friday struck me personally. When Bob Kennedy read the letter, he put it aside, temporarily incapable of response. Helms was referring to a meeting just a few days before, in which Helms and RFK had urged the president to get tougher on Castro. Helms had brought a machine gun, supposedly captured from the Cubans, into the Oval Office to support his point. Jack had made a joke about the gun. Three days later, a pro-Castro gunman blew his head off in broad daylight, or so the CIA's propaganda assets wanted him to believe. Grief overwhelmed Bob Kennedy's emotions as suspicion dominated his thoughts— a week later, he and Jackie sent a private message to Premier Khrushchev via their friend William Walton, a painter who was traveling to Moscow. The president's brother and widow wanted the Soviet leadership to know they did not believe press reports suggesting the Soviet Union was involved with Oswald. RFK and Jackie told the Soviets they believed that the president was killed by domestic opponents. Robert Kennedy knew Fidel Castro had not killed his brother. 
He knew the KGB wasn't involved. He could not be so sure about the CIA men or their allies in Miami and in the Mafia. And that was the punishing hell of it for Bob Kennedy, his naivete. He had trusted the CIA. He had believed in their mission. And now that Jack was gone, he had their condolences. Noah's Cloak Angleton would later say his instinct was to suspect a communist conspiracy. The facts, which he knew before almost everybody, justified such an interference. Oswald was a former defector, a Marine Corps radio operator who had a security clearance. He was an open leftist. He affiliated himself with the FPCC, designated by executive order as a subversive organization and targeted by the CIA and FBI for years. Oswald had visited the Cuban consulate in Mexico City, which Angleton had identified as a contact point for U.S.-based sympathizers. At the Soviet embassy, Oswald had met with a consular official named Vladimir Kostikov, who was known to Angleton. Just six months before, Hoover had asked Angleton if Kostikov was with the KGB's Department 13 responsible for assassinations. Angleton said no. Putting it baldly, said Pete Bagley, deputy chief of the Soviet Russia division, was Oswald wittingly or unwittingly part of a plot to murder President Kennedy in Dallas? Angleton didn't contact Wynne Scott himself. He delegated the task, ordering that the surveillance records be checked. Who was Kostikov? Whom had he met with? Within the day, the Mexico City station sent a list of all persons known to have been in touch with Kostikov in recent months. The counterintelligence staff then shared the list with Desmond Fitzgerald, chief of the Cuba operation. Fitzgerald saw that Kostikov had been visited by a Cuban government official named Rolando Kubela, and he had a huge problem. Fitzgerald knew Kubela. He knew that Kubela was a moody doctor turned revolutionary commandante who thought Castro was ruining Cuba. The CIA had dubbed him Amlash and recruited him as an assassin in 1961 and 1962, just three weeks before Fitzgerald had traveled to Paris to meet with him personally. At the suggestion of Dick Helms, Fitzgerald had presented himself as a representative of Bob Kennedy, even though he had not spoken with RFK about the matter. Fitzgerald and Kubela had discussed their options in murder weapons. Fitzgerald faced trouble, if not disgrace. If Kubela Amlash had met with Kostikov, maybe he had told him and the KGB about Fitzgerald's recruitment pitch. Maybe Kubela had played him and the CIA for fools, enabling Castro to strike first in Dallas using Oswald as his pawn. Under the circumstances, Fitzgerald didn't want to have anything to do with Angleton. He regarded Angleton as mentally unstable, drunken, and conspiratorial. He handed the list back without saying anything. Des was usually very imperturbable, but he was very disturbed about his involvement in the assassination business, recalled Walter Elder, aide to John McCone. Fitzgerald had fought in wars, led men toward the sound of gunfire, and he was scared about the forces behind the murder of the president. He stayed home that weekend, monitoring the constant TV news coverage from Dallas. On Sunday morning, he sat on the family couch with his wife and son. On the screen of the black-and-white television, Dallas policemen in their wide-brimmed hats escorted Oswald, the suspected assassin, to a waiting police wagon. A man stepped out of the crowd and stuck a pistol in Oswald's stomach. The screen spun into chaos. The accused assassin was dead. Fitzgerald's fears erupted into tears. 
It was the first and last time his wife and children saw him cry. Now we'll never know, he wept. We'll never know. Angleton was not so discomposed. He thought JFK's death a pity, not a tragedy. A couple of days later, he was at home when the phone rang. It was Alan Dulles calling. He said that President Johnson had asked him to serve on a blue-ribbon commission that would investigate the assassination. Dulles wanted to talk about the history of such commissions and whether he should accept. Angleton wasn't fooled. I could tell very easily that he wanted to be on it, Angleton recalled. He was looking for approbation from me and not criticism. He said he wanted tips on anything relevant to the agency. Dulles wanted to steer the commission's investigation away from the CIA, and Angleton was obliging. A conspiracy theorist would say Angleton masterminded the JFK cover-up. A prosecutor would say he obstructed justice. A bureaucrat would say he covered his ass. In every practical sense, his actions were invisible. In the tragedy of Dallas, Angleton played a ghost. America is in danger of upheavals, said French President Charles de Gaulle after the death of JFK. De Gaulle had survived a rightist assassination attempt on the back roads of France the year before. He knew his way around an ambush and American officialdom. But you'll see, he told an aide. All of them together will observe the law of silence. They will close ranks. They'll do everything to stifle any scandal. They will throw Noah's cloak over these shameful deeds in order to not lose face in front of the whole world, in order to not risk unleashing riots in the United States, in order to preserve the Union and to avoid a new civil war, in order to not ask themselves questions. They don't want to know. They don't want to find out. They won't allow themselves to find out. One CIA man tried to find out, and he paid a price. John Witten was a career civil servant, a GS-16 with super-grade status. His mistake was understandable. He assumed Angleton was interested in a serious counterintelligence investigation of President Kennedy's accused killer. He assumed wrong. After November 22nd, Witten worked 18-hour days, assisted by 30 officers from the Western Hemisphere Division and another 30 clerical workers. They compiled every report about Oswald from anywhere in the world. Much of it was rubbish, but it all had to be processed. Witten then wrote up his findings and solicited comments from all the CIA offices involved. He incorporated their input. The secretaries retyped his drafts, and the process was repeated. Angleton didn't share anything of what his office had learned about Oswald over the past four years. He didn't offer any evidence of KGB involvement. He didn't argue that Castro was behind Oswald. Instead, he tried to thwart Witten. In the early stage, Mr. Angleton was not able to influence the course of the investigation, Witten testified in secret session years later. He was extremely embittered that I was entrusted with the investigation, and he wasn't. Witten persevered. Based on all the information received, he concluded that Oswald was an erratic man of leftist sympathies who was disturbed enough to shoot the president. Witten knew that Oswald had been a person of interest to the counterintelligence staff before November 22nd. That did not trouble him. The agency monitored thousands of people. That was the nature of its work. Then Witten found out there was a whole lot he had not been told about Oswald. Publicly, President Johnson called on the nation to rally around the memory of its fallen leader. 
Privately, LBJ and J. Edgar Hoover made clear to their underlings that they wanted an investigation that showed that Oswald had acted alone and that no other parties were involved, foreign or domestic. The investigation had not yet begun, but the now-dead Oswald had already been judged the sole author of JFK's murder. The Bureau's agents did their best to oblige their bosses. They compiled a report on the assassination running to five volumes and scheduled it for release on December 9, 1963. Witten went to FBI headquarters to read an advance copy accompanied by Birch O'Neill, chief of the Special Investigations Group, which had controlled Oswald's file since 1959. The FBI report confirmed the story of a lone gunman who acted for no apparent reason. Oswald, the Bureau said, had grown up as a peculiar boy and become a disaffected man. He had come to the attention of the Bureau due to his obnoxious left-wing political views, but he seemed to pose no threat, all of which seemed plausible to Witten, but some details begged for investigation. Oswald, for example, had written his political views in a historical diary, according to the FBI. He had carried a card identifying himself as member of the pro-Castro Fair Play for Cuba Committee. He had been known as Alec in the Soviet Union, and he had ordered the murder weapons under the alias Alec Hidel. Witten realized he had been deceived. Angleton might have received all this information, he testified, but I did not. Witten complained to Helms. The deputy director called both men into his office on Christmas Eve, 1963. Witten explained to Helms what he had learned from the FBI. My report is irrelevant in view of all the added information, he said. This now takes us in an entirely different dimension. Witten was both surprised and not surprised by the response of the counterintelligence chief. Angleton started to criticize my report terribly without pointing out any inaccuracies, he recalled. It was so full of wrong things, we could not possibly send it to the Bureau. And I just sat there and I did not say a word. This was a typical Angleton performance. I had invited him to comment on the report, and he had withheld all of his comments until he got to the meeting. Helms deferred to Angleton. The ambitious deputy director didn't want to make waves at the White House or the Bureau. His predecessors had lost their jobs over the Bay of Pigs. Helms did not intend to lose his job over Dallas. Helms wanted someone to conduct the investigation who was in bed with the FBI, Witten maintained. I was not, and Angleton was. Angleton's power had reached a peculiar apex. The ambush in Dallas on November 22nd marked the worst failure of U.S. intelligence since December 7, 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. It had happened on Angleton's watch— Yet such was his bureaucratic genius that he managed to wind up in charge of the agency's investigation of the accused assassin. During Kennedy's presidency, his staff knew more about the obscure and unimportant Lee Oswald than just about anyone in the U.S. government. After the president was dead, he orchestrated the cover-up of what the CIA knew. Angleton intuited the devastated mood of the men and women who ran the U.S. government in late 1963. They don't want to know. They don't want to find out. They won't allow themselves to find out. Loathing I'm afraid to sleep for fear of what I might learn when I wake up, wrote journalist Hunter S. Thompson to a friend on the night of November 22, 1963. Thompson was living in a remote mountain town in Colorado. 
The shock and rage induced by the murder of President Kennedy inspired Thompson to coin the term that would become his signature, fear and loathing. I was not prepared at this time for the death of hope, but here it is, he wrote. Ignore it at your peril. This is the end of reason, the dirtiest hour in our time. Whatever Angleton's reaction to the murder of the 35th president, allegedly by a pro-Castro defector, he did not commit his thoughts to paper. Remarkably, the chief of CIA counterintelligence generated no known reports, memoranda, or analyses on Oswald, on his defection, his life in the Soviet Union, his Russian friends, his hunting trips, his marriage to a Russian woman, or his contacts with Cuban and Soviet personnel in Mexico City. Angleton did not author any studies of the possible role of the KGB, Castro, the Miami Cubans, or anyone else in Kennedy's assassination. He never even made a formal finding about the six Oswald letters intercepted by the lingual program. On the key counterintelligence questions raised by JFK's murder, he did very little. Angleton acted more concerned about exposure of his long-standing interest in Oswald and his more recent attention to the activities of the Cuban consulate in Mexico City. He and Helms constructed an artful cover story depicting the agency as inattentive to Oswald. After the assassination of President Kennedy and the arrest of Lee Oswald, an intensive review of all available sources was undertaken in Mexico City to determine purpose of Oswald's visit, Helms told Warren Commission counsel Lee Rankin in a January 31, 1964 memo. It was learned that Oswald had also visited the Cuban consulate. Emphasis added. In other words, the CIA claimed it did not know the purpose of Oswald's visit to Mexico and did not know that Oswald had contacted the Cubans in late September until after JFK was dead. That was a lie. Wynne Scott knew about Oswald's visit to the Cuban consulate at the time it happened. He wrote as much in his memoirs and reported it in cables read by Angleton's successor, George Kolaris. But the cover story seemed plausible to the Warren Commission, which published it in its final report. It just wasn't true. Within weeks, Angleton had gained effective control of the JFK investigation. In February 1964, the Commission's staff attorneys learned that Angleton had shared three CIA cables with the Secret Service on the night of the assassination. Lee Rankin asked the agency to produce the cables. Angleton resorted to deflection. He was loath to share anything about Oswald's Cuban contacts, probably because they related to sensitive operations such as LC Improve, counterespionage, LI Envoy, sensitive signals intelligence, and AMSPEL, anti-Castro psychological warfare. But he wanted to make sure he had Helms' support. Jim does not desire to respond directly, Ray Roca, his deputy, told Helms in a memo. Unless you feel otherwise, Jim would prefer to wait out the commission rather than turn over the CIA's records in their original form. Jim would prefer to wait out the commission. Why would a senior CIA official want to wait out the investigators of a presidential assassination? Roca later claimed that none of the cables were of substantive new interest. Oswald was not among the people photographed at the Cuban consulate, nor was he among the passengers on the manifest, he said. But in intelligence work, the source of information matters as much as its content. The very existence of the Cuban embassy photographs and the Cuban Airlines passenger manifest were substantive. 
they illuminated the fact that the CIA had the ability and the desire to photograph and identify every visitor to the Cuban consulate in Mexico City and to identify every potential American traveler to Cuba. Lee Harvey Oswald was no exception. Angleton preferred to wait out the Warren Commission rather than explain the CIA's knowledge of and interest in Oswald's visit to the Cuban consulate. If they come back on the point, Rocha told Helms, he, Angleton, feels that you or someone from here should be prepared to go over to show the commission the materials rather than pass them to them in copy. Howard Willens, attorney for the commission, did come back on the point. He asked to see the three cables. A graduate of the University of Michigan and Yale Law School, Willens had been serving in the criminal division of the Justice Department when JFK was killed. He joined the Warren Commission as an assistant counsel. He had admired the president just as he admired the CIA. He assumed, wrongly, the CIA men shared his interest in finding out the truth. I consider the CIA representatives to be among the more competent people in government who I have ever dealt with, Willens wrote in his diary after meeting with Ray Rocha on March 12, 1964. They articulate, they are specialists, and they seem to have a broad view of government. This may be, of course, because they do not have special access to grind in the Commission's investigation. Willens never imagined the CIA was deceiving him on fundamental facts about the events leading to the death of the President. In the fullness of time, he realized he had been duped. My journal comments about the CIA were naive, to say the least, Willens wrote in 2015. The CIA did have access to grind. In particular, Willens said, the agency's failure to disclose the plots to kill Castro compromised the integrity of the Warren Commission's investigation. Angleton participated in that cover-up, too. On May 8, 1964, Angleton received a memo from Harold Swenson, Chief of Counterintelligence for the agency's anti-Castro operations. Swenson had started working for the FBI before Pearl Harbor. He had a quarter century of experience. Swenson had learned from a reliable source that Oswald had been in contact with the suspected intelligence officer during his visit to the Cuban consulate. A year later, Swenson reported to senior CIA officials that Fidel Castro had probably known of the CIA's recruitment of Rolando Kubela as an assassin in late 1963. The Amlash operation, Swenson wrote in a 1963 memo read by Angleton, might have been an insecure operation prior to the assassination of President Kennedy. The counterintelligence implications were obvious. If Castro knew about the Amlash plot, then he had a motive for killing Kennedy, self-defense, possibly corroborated by Oswald's Cuban contact. Angleton chose not to investigate, tantamount to obstruction of justice. He knew about the Amlash plot and its possible compromise. He said nothing. Angleton's willingness to risk violating the law is not hard to understand. A serious counter-espionage investigation of Lee Oswald would have uncovered Angleton's abiding interest in him. It would have uncovered the various operations to kill Castro and Angleton's knowledge of them. No matter who fired the fatal shots in Dallas, Angleton had failed disastrously as counterintelligence chief. He could have and should have lost his job after November 22nd. Had the public, the Congress, and the Warren Commission known of his pre-assassination interest in Oswald or his post-assassination cover-up, he surely would have. Instead, his malfeasance, abetted by Dick Helms, went undetected. 
Angleton would remain in a position of supreme power for another decade. Defector Angleton was, in the words of George Kisavalter, a combination of Machiavelli, Svengali, and Iago. By the mid-1960s, Angleton reigned as the Machiavelli of the new American national security state, a thinker and a strategist of ruthless clarity. Like the Florentine philosopher Niccolò Machiavelli, who wrote in the 15th and 16th centuries, Angleton did not think ethical claims of virtue could or should restrain a man of power. His way of thinking had enabled him to build the counterintelligence staff into an invisible bastion of power with influence in all the major Western intelligence services, with allies in London, Rome, and Tel Aviv, with interlocutors in organized crime, organized labor, the Vatican, the Ivy League, the Pentagon, and the Washington Press Corps. He was an unseen broker of American power. Like Machiavelli, Angleton believed conspiracies were a key to understanding power. Many more princes are seen to have lost their lives and states through these plots than by open war, Machiavelli wrote, for being able to make open war on a prince is granted to few. To be able to conspire against them is granted to everyone. Angleton acted as a Svengali to a generation of Anglo-American intelligence officers and intellectuals, Svengali, the fictional hero of a 19th-century French novel, was a show-business impresario who hypnotized a young girl into becoming an international singing sensation and then led her to doom. Angleton was a seductive maestro of ideas and action. His theories persuaded experts, editors, spies, journalists, novelists, and diplomats to follow him faithfully, sometimes to their own regret. Angleton played Iago to four U.S. presidents— he was perhaps not so evil as the villainous advisor in Shakespeare's Othello, but like Iago, Angleton was a sympathetic counselor with his own agenda, which sometimes verged on the sinister. Angleton served the men in the Oval Office with seeming loyalty and sometimes devious intent. Angleton suspected conspiracies everywhere. That was a requirement of his job. Sometimes he was right. Often he was wrong and never was he more wrong than in the case of Yuri Nosenko. Nosenko, the dissolute KGB officer who had sold a few secrets to the CIA in 1962, showed up again in Geneva in January 1964, saying he wanted to defect. Angleton was more skeptical than ever. George Kisavalter and Pete Bagley were sent to debrief Nosenko, who told them a sensational story. He said he had supervised the case of Lee Harvey Oswald when the ex-Marine arrived in Moscow in October 1959. He said Oswald had been watched by a KGB unit in Minsk between 1959 and 1962, but was not recruited or utilized in any way. Oswald was regarded as unstable, and his Russian wife Marina was described as stupid, uneducated, and anti-Soviet. The KGB was glad to see them go when they left for the United States, he said. Kisavalter and Bagley were curious about how Nosenko could give such confident assurances about the KGB's lack of interest in Oswald. He replied that when his bosses heard a man named Oswald had been arrested for killing Kennedy, they ordered Oswald's file flown from Minsk to KGB headquarters in Moscow. He told Kisavalter and Bagley that he was there when his fellow officers paged through the entire file. He said they were relieved to find nothing incriminating. Nosenko told his American interrogators he wanted to leave the Soviet Union for good. He said, 
I've been ordered home, Kizavalta recalled, a claim that Nosenko later admitted was untrue. Despite reservations about his veracity, the CIA accepted him. On January 30, 1964, Dick Helms approved a $50,000 payment to Nosenko, with an annual contract of $25,000 a year for an indefinite period, along with provisions for retirement and benefits. The CIA men were keen to hear his story. Angleton made the case that Nosenko was a false defector sent by the KGB to mislead the agencies. Bagley agreed. So did David Murphy, the chief of the Soviet Russia division. Dave Murphy was one of those strivers who worked their way into the upper ranks of the CIA without the advantages of an Ivy League degree or family money. Born in upstate New York, Murphy had graduated from high school at age 16 and college by age 20. He joined the Army and married a Russian woman who had fled communism. After the war, Murphy enrolled in the Army's language school, where he learned Russian to complement the German and French he had already mastered. His language skills won him a promotion from Washington to the Berlin base, where he worked for Bill Harvey. In 1961, he was promoted to chief of the Soviet Russia division. He had responsibility for handling and resettling Nosenko. Nosenko was flown to the United States where he was admitted as a temporary resident under a secret arrangement that gave the CIA the authority to admit up to 100 persons a year. He was interrogated by Pete Bagley, and it did not go well. Bagley found Nosenko's responses to be evasive, inconsistent, and inaccurate. Angleton connected Nosenko's defection to Soviet propaganda about Kennedy's assassination. Nosenko's defection, he later told investigators, came after the Soviets had been asked by the Warren Commission to provide all information about Oswald's visit to Mexico City and around the time Khrushchev pulled aside a journalist in Egypt and said that Kennedy's death was the work of an American conspiracy. Angleton reasoned that if the Kremlin had gone so far as to murder the American president, it almost certainly would attempt to conceal its involvement by talking up a right-wing conspiracy. He hypothesized that Nosenko was sent with the improbable message that the Soviets had taken no interest in Oswald in order to shield the KGB's real role. At Angleton's behest, the CIA reneged on its promises to Nosenko. On orders from Dave Murphy, he was taken to a CIA safe house in southern Maryland and involuntarily detained in the attic. The room featured a metal bed attached to the floor. It was fed weak tea, watery soup, and porridge. There was no air conditioning or ventilation. Nosenko had landed in what a future generation would call a black site, an extrajudicial CIA prison. He would remain in detention for more than four years. Angleton would later claim he had opposed the incarceration and hostile interrogation of Yuri Nosenko. Pete Bagley knew better. Angleton never opposed the incarceration, he said. Not only did Angleton support incarceration, he agreed that Nosenko needed to be broken. Time was running out. On June 27, 1964, Angleton, Roca, and Murphy questioned Anatoly Golitsyn about Nosenko with the tape recorder running. He is a provocateur who is on a mission for the KGB, Golitsyn insisted. He was introduced to your agency as a double agent in Geneva in 1962. During all the time until now, he has been fulfilling a KGB mission against your country. When Murphy raised the problem of breaking Nosenko, Angleton did not object or propose any alternatives. He only expressed the opinion that it was going to be difficult. We have a limited body of information, he told Murphy. 
and you've already thrown up to him a very great number of questions that are complex, and he managed to get through the histrionics and not break. In fact, he has been a long way from breaking. He is nowhere near breaking now. On July 24th, Helms accompanied Murphy and Bagley to a closed-door session with the Warren Commission's seven members. They wanted to know if Nosenko's claim that the KGB didn't have anything to do with Oswald was credible. Nosenko is a KGB plant, Bagley declared, and may be exposed as such sometime after the Commission report. That was all Chief Justice Earl Warren needed to hear. Much to Angleton's satisfaction, the Commission decided to exclude Nosenko's information from its report. Angleton escaped accountability. On September 29, 1964, the Warren Commission presented its findings to President Lyndon Johnson. The commissioners endorsed the December 1963 FBI report. Oswald alone and unaided had killed the president for reasons known only to himself. The findings were stated categorically, as if there was no dispute about any of the facts. There was no hint of intelligence failure in the report, just the tragedy of inattention. The FBI had received no information that Oswald might pose a threat to the president, the commission said. The CIA had simply missed him when he contacted the Cubans in Mexico City. As for the agency's extensive covert intelligence activities regarding Oswald, Angleton and Helms effectively erased the story from the historical record. When the Italian press weighed in on the Warren Commission report, Bill Harvey, now settled in Rome, sent a cable to Angleton. He noted approvingly that the Christian Democratic paper Il Popolo gave the report excellent straight coverage, stating that Oswald was the killer of Kennedy and the crime was committed without the assistance of foreign or domestic conspirators. By contrast, the crypto-communist afternoon daily Paese Sera said the report contained many contradictions and omission and concealment of testimony. The Warren Commission had arrived at arbitrary facts and conclusions— Harvey's alcoholism soon consumed him, and Dick Helms removed him from the Rome station and active duty. Harvey was the proverbial burnout. His hatred of the Kennedys was as legendary as his big gut and fondness for guns. More than one associate in Rome told of Harvey ending arguments by pointing a loaded pistol at the head of the person daring to disagree with him. His admiring but appalled biographer called him a flawed patriot— his longtime colleague John Witten described him as a thug. When Sam Giancana, the mobster who had worked with the agency, was shot dead in his Chicago apartment in 1975, Witten thought Harvey might have been the killer. Some JFK authors wondered if he had a role in JFK's death. One CIA associate told the journalist that he saw Harvey on a commercial flight to Dallas in November 1963, an odd destination for a Rome station chief. Thanks to Angleton and Helms, the Warren Commission never interviewed Harvey. The Warren report was supposed to put to rest rumors and speculation about the causes of Kennedy's murder. It did not quell Angleton's curiosity. He wanted to see the evidence for himself. On October 9, 1964, Jane Roman asked Sam Papich for the FBI's copy of the home movie of JFK's assassination made by Abraham Zapruder, a Dallas businessman. The film, obtained by Life magazine, had never been shown publicly. It would only be used for training purposes, Roman said. Angleton's friend, Deputy FBI Director Bill Sullivan, approved the request. And so it is likely that Angleton saw Zapruder's film 11 years before the American people did. It would not have been easy to watch the murder of a man he knew from many a dinner party, 
it would not have been reassuring either. The Warren Commission's report, written with the help of Alan Dulles, quoted Secret Service agent Clint Hill saying he saw JFK lurch forward and to the left when hit. Watching Zapruder's 26 seconds of color film, Angleton would have seen how mistaken Hill and the Warren Commission were. The footage showed Kennedy grimacing and raising his arms as he was jolted by the first gunshot, which hit him in the back. And then, a few seconds later, he was blasted backward and to the left by the fatal shot. Angleton lived in a violent world. Three days after Jane Roman requested a copy of Zapruder's film, Angleton experienced another murder. His friend Mary Meyer was killed in broad daylight. Mary Mary Meyer was walking west on the towpath next to the old Chesapeake and Ohio Canal in Georgetown at lunchtime on October 12, 1964. She was 44 years old, the mother of two teenage boys. She was now divorced from her husband, Cord, whose youthful idealism had hardened into mature self-righteousness. Liberating herself from the narrow role of CIA wife, Mary had moved to Georgetown and become a painter while remaining friends with Jim and Cicely Angleton. She walked the towpath almost daily, loving its shady trees and lovely vistas of the Potomac River. She was accosted by a light-skinned African-American man. They struggled. He produced a pistol and shot her twice. She tumbled onto the grass by the canal and died. An auto mechanic fixing a car on nearby Canal Road saw the man walk away from her body and head down toward the Potomac River. He called the police. That afternoon, Cicely Angleton was at home in Arlington when she heard a bulletin on the radio reporting a woman had been killed in Georgetown on the CNO Canal path. She knew Mary often walked there and feared the worst. When Angleton came home, he dismissed his wife's anxiety. They would see Mary that evening, he said. She was going with them to hear Reed Whitmore speak on Capitol Hill. His former Yale roommate was giving a droll talk on ways of understanding poetry and being dismal. Cicely was panicky as Jim drove the Mercedes to the front of Mary's townhouse on N Street in Georgetown. Mary had a painting studio in the back where a canvas still damp from her velvety strokes was drying under a whirring fan. Mary's car was in the driveway, yet the lights were out inside. A sign hanging on the door said, Free kittens, ring bell or call. Angleton pushed the doorbell. No answer. He tried the door, which was unlocked. He went into the house. It was empty. In the car, Cicely was close to tears. She had told Mary not to walk along the canal. It used to be safe. It wasn't anymore. Mary had paid her no mind. To reassure his wife, Angleton called Mary's answering service. The voice on the phone informed him that Mrs. Meyer had been murdered earlier that day. Cicely wept, and Jim blinked. They went straight to the home of Ben and Tony Bradley, who lived a few blocks away. Their gathering friends were shocked as they were. Ben Bradley had been pulled out of a meeting at Newsweek to go down to the police station. He returned, still stunned by the sight of Mary's lifeless body in her Angora sweater. More friends gathered. The phones rang. Doorbells buzzed. Someone remembered the cats that Mary was trying to give away. Angleton walked back to Mary's house and rescued the three kittens. Food and drink materialized, ordered by Cicely, Tony, and the other women. The radio said a suspect had been arrested. 
Cicely never cared to talk about that awful day, but she did remember Anne Truitt's phone call. The Truitts had recently moved to Japan, where Anne's husband worked as a Newsweek correspondent. Anne called from Tokyo, asking to speak to Angleton. Angleton took the call in a quiet room. Anne Truitt told him that Mary had kept a diary in her sketchbook, a journal about life and her thoughts, along with her drawings. She said that Mary had told her that if anything ever happened to her, she wanted Angleton to have the sketchbook for safekeeping. Truitt said that Mary usually left it in the bookcase in the bedroom. Bradley, then in line to become the next editor of the Washington Post, recognized how Angleton's aura of intrigue attracted his friends. They trusted him with their most intimate confidences, he observed, as if the secret would be somehow safer in his keeping than in theirs. Together, these friends combed Mary Meyer's house for the diary. They tapped walls and looked in the fireplace. They turned over bricks in the garden, but found nothing. Given the dismal circumstances surrounding Mary's death, drinking came easily as night fell. Angleton washed the dishes and the whiskey flowed. Someone wandered out into the garden and shouted to the sky, Mary, where's your damned diary? Cord Meyer lit a fire to ward off the chill. Everyone agreed that Angleton should have Mary's diary, everyone save Ben Bradley. In his memoir, the Washington Post editor told a different story. We didn't start looking until the next morning when Tony and I walked around the corner a few blocks to Mary's house, Bradley wrote. It was locked, as we had expected, but when we got inside, we found Jim Angleton, and to our complete surprise, he told us he too was looking for Mary's diary. Bradley's surprise suggested that he did not know what Anne Truitt had said, that Mary wanted Angleton to have the diary. We asked him how he had gotten into the house, and he shuffled his feet, Bradley wrote. We felt his presence was odd, to say the least, but we took him at his word, and with him we searched Mary's house thoroughly, without success. We found no diary. The next day, Bradley said he returned to look for the diary in Mary's padlocked studio. He had brought along some tools to pick the lock. He recounted that he was surprised to run into Angleton again. He was already picking the lock, according to Bradley. He would have been red-faced if his face could have gotten red, and he left almost without a word, Bradley wrote. He said Tony Bradley found the diary an hour later, and they turned it over to Angleton. The story had a ring of truth when published in 1995. Angleton was a legendary covert operator and an accomplished lockpicker. Bradley was an honored editor with the Pulitzer Prize. But in this storytelling contest, at least, the spy was perhaps more credible than the scribe. Much has been written about this diary, most of it wrong, Bradley wrote. Since Bradley took 30 years to publish his account of the search for Mary Meyer's diary, more aggressive journalists had beaten him to the story, tainting ever so slightly his reputation as the fearless crusading leader of the Washington Post's Watergate coverage. Those reporters inevitably made some minor factual errors when they broke the story, but Bradley knew that the story they reported was true in all of its essentials. His sister-in-law, Mary Meyer, did have an affair with his friend, the president. She did keep a diary that made reference to their relationship. And Bradley did acquiesce in giving it to a top CIA man rather than write anything about it. In his social circle, Angleton was a reassuring figure, a man with a record and reputation that seemed beyond reproach. Perhaps Angleton was furtive in his searching of Mary's home and studio. 
If so, he was merely engaged in the same task as Bradley, preventing the diary from falling into the wrong hands. Bradley's story was self-serving. In 1964, he didn't think twice about turning Mary's journal over to the CIA. A decade later, he didn't care to admit it, so he wrote an account of the incident that made himself look good, or less bad, by portraying Angleton as a would-be thief. Cicely Angleton had reason to complain to the New York Times. Mary Meyer's diary mattered because she mattered to the man who had been president. During her affair with JFK in 1961 through 1963, Meyer sought to bring her lover the kind of unique experiences he would never encounter in his work or in the embrace of his conventional friends and family. Meyer had become friends with Timothy Leary, a professor at Harvard Medical School with an interest in the uses of LSD. She asked Leary how to take LSD so that she could introduce the drug to her circle in Washington. I have this friend who's a very important man, she told Leary without mentioning names. He's impressed by what I've told him about LSD. Meyer later told Leary that she had smoked marijuana and taken LSD with her important friend. The day after the assassination, Meyer called Leary. He was changing too fast, she said. They couldn't control him anymore. Mary's use of they implied that she thought JFK had been struck down by powerful enemies. I remember her inability to fathom violence, recalled Carrie Fisher, a male friend who had a crush on her. It was more than a personal loss for her. I remember saying, here was a punk, Oswald, rejected by all, looking for a golden boy, the one upon whom all riches and power and beauty had been bestowed as his victim, and she seemed to agree with that. 